Justin Wren might just have the biggest heart of anybody that I know. He's an MMA fighter, and he also founded an organization called The Fight for the Forgotten. And his story is absolutely incredible, from incredible deep challenges to ultimately offering his medicine to the whole world. I can't wait to share this podcast with you. This podcast is brought to you by the Fit for Service Academy, available in the App Store, by Blue Blocks, blueblocks.com slash amp, by Helix, helixsleep.com slash amp, and of course, by Onnit, onnit.com slash Aubrey. In this podcast, Justin Wren shares the vulnerable stories about how he was severely bullied when he was growing up, how that translated into him becoming a fighter, and of course, gave him a deep call to be of service to anybody who's in need. He founded an organization called The Fight for the Forgotten, which is an incredible story about how he was called to go be of service to the pygmy people in the Congo, a people that were often forgotten by mainstream and Western society, as well as all of the African culture. He's offering clean water and a lot of support, and that's just his nature. He's the type of guy that's there for anybody who's in need. He's been there for me. He's been there for everybody in the Fit for Service community, and he's making a comeback. He's going to be a fighter again as well. So an incredibly interesting podcast that covers everything from bullying to suicidal ideation to that deep call for service. So I can't wait to share this podcast with you and introduce to you Justin Wren. If you haven't heard him on any other podcast, this is a really powerful and intimate podcast. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Fit for Service Academy is based around an idea that we all need community. When you look out at the world, Loneliness is the number one predictor of early mortality. And what is loneliness? It's that feeling that nobody can see you, that you can't really connect with people, perhaps because everything that you're showing is a projection of what you want people to think. You're afraid that if you show your radical, vulnerable truth, people won't be there to receive it. But there are people who are there to receive it, people of like-minded, like-hearted nature who just want to share and connect and explore different ideas in a space that is not going to receive the type of savagery and criticism that we find in the macro on social media. The app, the Fit for Service Academy, is a really revolutionary concept where it has all of the features of social media. You can post about anything, but also the ability to connect with so many different people. There's master classes in the app, there's guided meditations, ecstatic breath work, there's all kinds of different coaching modules. We're really putting everything in one place. That's the idea for Fit for Service. First, you become fit to be of service, and then you apply that to be of service to the world. The app is off to an incredible start. We have over 2,000 people in the community, all dedicated to this same principle. Check it out. The first month is absolutely free, so you can dive in, you can consume all the media, you can connect with people, and see if it resonates with you. See if this is something that is the solution to something that maybe you knew that you've been looking for, or maybe you didn't. But I can't wait to see you guys on the inside. I've met so many incredible people in the app, and offering the live streams, offering everything to just really form this global community so that none of us feel alone anymore. You can download it in the App Store or check it out, aubreymarcus.com slash FFS Academy. So available in all the App Stores or aubreymarcus.com slash FFS Academy. 
Sleep is one of those universal levers that just helps all aspects of life. It helps the way that your mind works. It helps the way that your body works. It helps absolutely everything. So if you're going to target one human optimization practice, target sleep because it's going to affect more things than virtually anything else. And one of the ways to do that is to minimize the amount of blue light that you're receiving before you go to sleep. The problem with blue light is that it blocks the melatonin production that actually signals the body that it's time to go to sleep. And in our world of screens and artificial lights, it's really important to offer the body this gift so that we can produce that melatonin naturally and sleep easily and restfully. And blue blocks is an incredible solution because it allows you to do whatever you want to do at night have your electronic lights, have your screens, but if you wear these glasses that block out the blue light, you're going to be supporting your body's own melatonin production and helping yourself fall asleep. And the glasses, they're stylish. It's really the best company making this type of glasses that I've ever seen. So check it out. Blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash amp for 15% off. Once again, blueblocks.com slash amp for 15% off. So I'm redesigning the upstairs guest room. I made it a darkness room and I'm changing from a king bed to a queen bed just so I have some more room to move around if I'm going to have my own darkness retreat. And when I was looking to get a queen mattress, I looked no farther than Helix Mattress. I had an opportunity to check out their mattresses, to sleep on one of them, and they're absolutely phenomenal. And it just really revolutionizes the way that you even receive mattresses. I mean, going to like Mattress Firm or one of those mattress stores, that's not the way. Helix Mattress delivers it. It doesn't have all of that off-gassing and anything that you smell from one of those mattresses that you might get. It's really, really the highest quality mattress that I've found, and it just delivers straight to your door so you don't have to go through all of that different hassle. You can go to Helix Sleep check out the sleep quiz. It takes just two minutes to complete and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. So then that's going to be different for everybody. Personally, you know, I found out that I like firm mattresses. I sleep on my side and everything that you actually do as a sleeper, they can actually match you to your mattress. So it makes a lot of sense. Take the quiz, order the mattress that you're matched to. The mattress comes right to your door. It's shipped for free and you don't have to worry about any of the other stuff. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine, and it makes a lot of sense. So definitely check it out. Go to helixsleep.com slash amp, H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash amp. Take their quiz. They got a 10-year warranty, and you really have nothing to risk. You get 100 nights risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. Helix is also offering $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for the listeners at helixsleep.com slash amp. I'm sure by now you are all familiar with many of the things that Onnit has to offer, but I'm sure that there are many other tools that Onnit provides for human optimization that perhaps you haven't tried, whether it's Shroom Tech Sport for working out, whether it's New Mood to create that sense of peaceful equanimity and mood regulation, whether it's some of the great things like the protein bites or the protein, whether it's some of the workouts, the On It In 30 or the On It 6 programs or some of the equipment, there's so many different tools to explore, to check out that will dramatically enhance and improve your life. So go to onit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off absolutely everything. 
and just try some stuff. Check it out. And if it doesn't work out for you, there's a great return policy. So there's virtually no risk to try and explore all of these different products. And I promise you, you're going to find some things that maybe you didn't know can make a big impact on your life. So many of these on it products, I mean, these are things that I take every day. These are things that I can't imagine living without, and I'm sure you're going to feel the same way. So onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Justin Wren. Justin Wren, we finally made this happen, man. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. It's been a while in the works, and of course... You joined Fit for Service, and we got to be really good friends before we did this, so it's fucking even better. It's even better. It's even better. Absolutely. I love this. Synchronicity. Yeah. So, man, let's go back, and I think a lot of people are familiar with some of your story, but I want to go back to, like, go back to the beginnings. Sure. You know, like, early family. Yeah. You know, because obviously you've had a an incredibly interesting life with what's gone on, but, you know, oftentimes you can find these kind of roots, these sparks of both trauma and challenge and also inspiration from the early days so take wow. us back to the early days yeah i think it's been a while since i've talked about that i think there's some stuff that i've learned recently about my family that does contribute to like my mission and vision and life story um anyways yeah i, I was born in greenville mississippi which i guess is the first i think if i'm correct it's the first kind of all-black city in america um, and so my, anyways, my mom was like one of two, uh, white what, people what at her you, school. An all black city? Yeah. Yeah. In Mississippi. Just, uh. So that, so that must've been the product of some kind of segregation or something. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, so, definitely. Big time. Uh, yeah. my parents grew up around all that. My parents are so open-minded. I love so them. So your parents and, were uh, like, nah, fuck this. You know, like we're not into this. We're going to go integrate and just be a part of the city. Yeah. I mean, I, they grew up there. Um, yeah. and they were some of the last people that my dad moved for his job. He mm -hmm. was, I grew up around actually like Shaquille O'Neal, Jason Kidd, uh, Michael Jordan, Brett Favre. Uh, my dad's a professional sports photographer. Uh -huh. So I grew up around professional athletes and just from an early age being a kid, I wanted to be a pro athlete, even though I didn't think I could do it really because like I had no self-confidence, self-worth. I grew up getting very heavily bullied from like third grade to eighth grade. I mean, look what and they so, done did. Yeah. <laughs> It's, Thanks, it's, bullies. Yeah, it, dude, it made me a fighter. Yeah. Um, it drew me into fighting. And anyways, being from Greenville, Mississippi, um, then I moved to Dallas-Fort Worth um, at an early age and grew up in the country. And when when my parents moved out of Fort Worth into the country um, in third grade, that's when I started sitting at the lunch table by myself, getting pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk spitwads, food, fist as kids walked by um i remember middle school it really ramped up and um there's a kid that's now in jail i think for like armed robbery but he just blindsided me with a football helmet in the back of the head and uh, i was in the locker room um i was sitting there sweaty and him and the coach had gotten into it out on the field or something and it's kind of this little like kind of i know how you'd say it but was in like a gang it was doing all this initiations just a punk kid kind of thing mm -hmm. I didn't even see it coming. No warning. Me and him didn't have any beef on the field, nothing. And all of a sudden, I just got smacked upside the back of the head with a football helmet. And after that, they took my clothes while I went to the showers, showered up, didn't want to tell on them. Um, so I got this big goose egg, not goose egg, like a half softball coming off the yeah. back of my head. Take my clothes, throw them under the bleachers, and 
leave me a little hand towel to towel off with and uh, the girls' volleyball games going on um, and my clothes are underneath the bleachers. And you, know? you said, ladies, I'm sorry, but you're welcome. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're welcome. <laughs> that would yeah. have been the gangster move. That would have been too. gangster, just, but I was not out, a gangster. Walk out like, like, yeah. I think walk I, out like Matthew McConaughey yeah, with a right, fucking right, bongo right, right, and right. just his dick out and just be like, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I would have walked out with two or three pink bellies. You know what a pink belly was? Where no. they like slap your belly um, mm-hmm. and leave a handprint on there. Some like purple nurples, stuff like that <laughs> walking out. <laughs> but uh, no, and then and then I guess the kind of um, big moment was I got invited to my middle school crush's birthday party. Um, her name is Jennifer and uh, her dad worked at Dr. Pepper, which I think is a Texas thing, right? That's where it originated was Texas, Dr. Pepper and... Anyways, uh, her dad worked there, was an executive there. She was like this little actress girl. Do you remember Little Rascals, Mm-mm. the movie? Well, uh, Ryan probably Alfalfa, does. Ryan's, uh, Ryan, Ryan, knows, yeah, Ryan knows about Little Rascals. That, that, was, that was my favorite movie growing up. And she was the uh, she was originally casted as Darla um, for Little Rascals, but they went with another girl that was older but looked younger type thing because I guess child actors, that's better. Anyways, so she was this little, I mean, Alfalfa came to our middle school to have like lunch one day. And I was, you know, so she was super popular, super cute. Right. And I was trying to impress her, catch her eye. And her birthday party was a costume contest. So the winner was going to get a prize. And it was a Dr. Pepper gumball machine because her dad worked there. And they had a Dublin Dr. Pepper machine in their house from Dublin, Texas. They do like the real cane sugar, I guess, from uh-huh. there. And so anyways, uh, I wanted to catch her eye. People were going as Thor. I probably should have gone. That's Thor. That would have been a shoe-in. That would have been a shoe-in. But people didn't know then. They didn't know then. I didn't have the hair. Um, And then uh, Batman, Superman, different stuff like that. But she loved Transformers. So I wanted to catch her eye, so I went all out. Her favorite Transformer, I found out, was uh, Dr. Optimus Prime. So I decided to make myself head-to-toe Dr. Optimus Pepper to transform, right? 24-pack on the head, 12-packs on the arm. (laughs) chest plate sword shield uh-huh. and my mom helped me with some duct tape being a country kid so yeah. um my mom's like jennifer's gonna love this so i thought i was gonna rock it <laughs> i had the invitation and it was gonna be dope um and got there mimi opened the door her grandmother and was like jennifer's gonna whoa she's like wow jennifer's gonna be blown away she's gonna love this rumors at school were true push the button on the Dublin Dr. Pepper machine. It pops it right out. Uh I go to the backyard and they even had their, because he worked there and it's kind of in the Texas culture, at least their culture, uh, they had Dr. Pepper vintage signs up and stuff. You got so much cool decor and feng shui in here. And same thing there. Like it was a really cool house. And so I I was feeling like being a kid that grew up for five years, being bullied from third to eighth grade, this is 13 years old. I actually feel like, oh, I can stand a little taller. Like I don't have to be right. so timid or hunched over or just like unsure about myself walking into this party. Like I went all out. I'm going to catch her eye. Like this is a shoe in like uh, better than Thor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so walk to the backyard, open the door and I'm greeted by my peers. And man, I'm blasted with a couple flashes of light. And my eyes adjust and I hear the sound of laughter and I see that not one other person's dressed up. It's just me. And they're taking pictures of me and I hear Jennifer say, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. Tyler next to her said, you're worthless. He's got a cool turnaround story now, but then he was 
I don't know. He was just uh, not, not, not the kindest guy then. But Justin, the one that notoriously bullied me from third to eighth grade, this was his like mastermind, his, or his uh, brainchild. Um, and this wasn't the first time he had done something, went all out, you know, got everybody in on it. And I remember Justin saying, you should just kill yourself. Wow. And so, yeah, 13 years old, I started the biggest battle of my life, which was against depression and suicidal ideation um, and, you know, a couple of attempts in my life. And, when was the first one? Um, so 13, right then and there, I became suicidal. I ran away from that like party. A, it was like a, a spell that was cast on you in a certain way, you know? Hmm. Like yeah. It, at that moment and all of that emotion and all of that humiliation all that yeah. betrayal and all that with those words hmm. landing in a vulnerable place it's like such deep. a vulnerable wounded yeah place totally. where I, those words just wind their way in and becomes a thought idea becomes inception in your mind it's literally like a like a black magic spell wow it literally became my truth yeah. um anytime i would go into like a place of darkness or depression or desperation like i would think these three things you're worthless you're not good enough maybe you should just kill yourself i mean take out the maybe you should just kill yourself and that was on like re repeat on like a record player in my mind for 20 years almost it went from 13 then i kind of broke through it from 15 to 17 18 when did you start being resurfaced <laughs> uh whenever i was 19 i started fighting professionally did you so you never got to beat justin up no no, I didn't. You uh, must have thought about it a few times. Oh, yeah. So I'm at a sushi <laughs> spot after the Ultimate Fighter. And uh, <laughs> 21, 22. It's called Reckoning, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, it was, it was uh, kind of wild. I, um, I went in there real quick. I was at a place called Bar 9 in Fort Worth. And they just had a big watch party at Buffalo Wild Wings for me. Then the after party at Bar 9. But there was a sushi spot. And I called piranha sushi anyways they had this marry me roll it's called marry me and it had avocado tuna and strawberries mm. on it and this like kind of sweet anyways it's really romantic. good it was yeah marry me it's a good <laughs> uh proposal roll anyways I, I i went there to get that just real quick and i see no joke justin and about eight or ten people and five or six of them were at that party whenever i was in middle school and now it's eight years later, nine years later. And Justin comes up, grabs me, says, no, f no fucking way. Come over here. And he brings me over that table and I'm like dreading it. I feel like I'm in middle school again. Wow. I feel like, oh shoot. Like I'm looking in the eyes of Jennifer, Tyler, Justin, Corey, like these people that were at the party, the people that know now because I shared on Joe's show, his podcast and stuff, but they know that I literally ran away from that house party. I ran away from her birthday party, ended up behind a Dairy Queen, ripped off the cardboard chest plate and shield and threw it away. I had, I had, I had duct tape residue, like sticky stuff on my uh, shirt, my jeans. I was literally hugging it, like crawl, curled up into a ball or fetal position on my butt, but like almost hugging my knees and rocking. Just bawling bro just bawling thinking i'm worthless i'm not good enough i should just kill myself at 13 and i'm there with them at 22 i think i think we recorded when i was 21 it played when i was 22 i'm the youngest heavyweight in the ufc 
I was a 10-time state champion in wrestling, a five-time All-American in wrestling, and a two-time Greco-Roman national champion, Mm -hmm. or actually high school, then Greco. Living at the Olympic Training Center, went on the Ultimate Fighter show, and he comes and brings me over to the the crowd, or the they're all sitting down, I'm standing up. Even that body language, right? Like, not good enough to be at the table with them. I'm just stopping by the table saying hi real quick. And I know that's a silly thing, because I'm in a place of like, not prominence, but just uh, I've been on TV now, yeah. yeah, and uh, and they're you know doing whatever, and no judgments there, but just uh, like seeing them, I'm like, wow, like I'm so glad I got away from this and found wrestling and MMA and just well, and that resistance was the hammer and the forge and the place where you went in with brittle steel mm. and that pressure you know forged the blade that that is who you are right yeah. like so ultimately there's gratitude on oh, the other yeah. side but Bro. but fuck man what a way to what a way to do it yeah. i mean because that same heat and that same hammer can really shatter somebody and you've had to go through points where you almost shattered from you know some of that early imprinting as well yeah. you know and you've been riding that line of that was I mean, an impossibly intense situation mm. to to hold that much. I mean, that amount of heat and that amount of pressure and that amount of those amount of blows. Like, you're riding the line of can I adapt to this or will this overwhelm me? Yeah. You oh know? man, and I felt overwhelmed. I felt consumed and just and flooded with like dark. I felt like I was drowning, and I've got something to tell you on that drowning because I had a vision, and I'm going to tell you about uh, in Sedona mm. uh, with you. And, uh, anyways, I, yeah, man, I don't think they understood because I'm standing there one real quick to finish that story. I'm at Dairy Queen. I'm crying. I'm sitting behind a dumpster and they're closing and they're throwing away the garbage and an employee hears me crying or sees me and say, Oh honey, what's going on? Like come inside. What, what happened? You know, we need to get a, where's your mom? It's like nine or 10 PM at night. Dairy Queen's closing down and it's right before cell phones, or at least I had a cell phone and I don't think my mom had one yet. I'm 13, 20 years ago. And, um, so I call home, leave a voicemail. She has to go home, get the voicemail, come back. Cause she's out searching for me. Mm. There's people looking for me cause I literally ran away. And what, is, and, wait, what the fuck about the parents? Like how did the parents let that happen? And how did fuck, then fuck Dr. To, Pepper. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm grateful for Dr. Pepper now. No, fuck them. <laughs> Dr. No. Pepper, Dr. Pepper is done for me. <laughs> no. It was done anyway. I actually. fucking really done. I'm not even going to drink Zevia, Dr. Pepper. Maybe I will. But fuck it. <laughs> it's yeah. done. Well, one of those two, Dr. either Dr. Pepper or Zevia, DP, we need to ask them for a sponsorship for <laughs> bullying prevention now yeah you know what we could use the story anti-bullying campaign right we could do that change it take something that was intended for harm and use it for good yeah that's what i love to do now with my life and um but yeah so i literally had to transfer schools because of that my mom comes i just remember my mom being shattered she knew i wasn't really totally accepted at school she knew it was hard for me but I hadn't really opened up and like let her know the depths of the darkness I was living in. And, but right after that, I was clinically diagnosed with depression. I was suicidal, but then I found MMA about three or four weeks after that party. Mm. And I was at Trader's Village, which is in Fort Worth, Arlington. And it's like this big flea market. I was going to buy a BB gun because I lived on a like little country, you know, I was going to shoot some rice or mice in the barn and uh, just do a little target practice. And 
instead I, uh, found a used VHS shop that was also selling. I've never shared this story. Uh, they were also selling, um, like flying squirrels. This place was selling flying squirrels and used VHS. Welcome tapes. to Oklahoma, everybody. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this is actually Fort Worth. Oh, but Fort welcome Arlington. to Texas, welcome everybody. To Texas. You got a tiger here at this truck stop. You got a flying squirrel and you got some UFC number tapes. one yeah. with Hoist Gracie yeah. on a VHS. They were missing that one, but they had two through 11, I think. Or two through nine. <laughs> number one was fucking precious. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I bought all of them. I bought all of them, hit them under my bed. And when my dad found the stash of VHS tapes under my bed, I'm 13 years old. He thinks I'm hiding a stack of porn or pornos. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, listen, son, I don't know what you're into. <laughs> <laughs> but like here's a playboy he's thinking, i'm a little worried about thinking, you <laughs> he's thinking he's gonna see two like girl on girl or something yeah, then, no no so no, it's guy on guy, guy on guy grappling pounding. in full mounts or <laughs> in, in the guard and pound him you take it taking his back we're naked <laughs> choke <laughs> and anyways man i guess to wrap that up like my mom like saw how devastated i was then she got behind me wrestling because I wanted to box before that. Yeah. And she's like, no, you're not taking that head damage. You're not taking shots to the head as a kid. And then when I found wrestling, it was so much easier to sell to her or like show her. And yeah. then they found me support to Olympic gold medalists as my high school coaches. Anyways, then I'm at the sushi restaurant. And I've never shared this with anyone, but I don't think. And I'm sitting there, standing there. And they're all looking at me. And they're all talking about that party. Do you remember when... And like, I'm taken back there because it's nine years later, but I'm with the same five or six people that were basically the masterminds of this thing. The ones that created the fake invitations. Was that It was their brainchild. They got everyone in on it. Hush, hush. Talk to Justin about what costume you're going to wear. Get him to talk about what he's going to wear. Like they helped me plan out this biggest bullying of my moment of my life to then say, you're worthless. You're not good enough. And you should kill yourself. And then... I'm standing there with them and Justin goes, you know, if we knew, you know, eight, 10 years later, you're going to be the youngest heavyweight in the UFC, we would have never bullied you, bro, ever. And I'm just like, wow, because now I could beat you up. You would have <laughs> treated me better. You would have been a kind soul. You would have been a gracious person. You right. would have been a, yeah, you would have been a good dude if you knew I could have whooped you, if there was a punishment associated with it. Um, but anyways, like, uh, I, I don't know why I went into that story so deep except for it's really helped form me and shape me and give me a heart of compassion for people. That's why our vision statement with fight for the forgotten is defeat how, hate with love. So have no, with that, like you have people <clears throat> that would be some of the hardest people to forgive, mm. right? And forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself, yeah. right? It's not a gift that you're giving them. And I think a lot of people get that wrong. Oh, I'm going to forgive you. That's a gift to you. Yeah, sure. But really, the forgiveness is a gift to yourself. So you yeah. don't have to hold that anger and hold that rage inside yourself. Forgiveness, give that gift to yourself. Exactly. Wow. And and so, have you have? Do you feel like you've gotten to that place where you've gotten and and found the gratitude for the pressure that they put you under that's made you who you are, and then oh, yeah. ultimately gotten to a place of forgiveness? Because that would be a hard motherfucking thing to do. I, I have this year, this year, and it's been a ten year, literally a ten year journey of forgiveness. Um, because what, it was a year or two later after that moment that like I had this big shift in my life. 
I started to fight for the forgotten in 2011. Um, it's 2020. Wow. That's wild. Um, and yeah, man, I'm, I'm really grateful now, but I yeah. think Sedona had a lot to do with that. Um, and seeing people actually suffer, which obviously we all suffer. It's the human experience. We're going to suffer. Um, like that's guaranteed. Well, the, and what's interesting is, so we'll go into fight for the forgotten. We'll sure. talk about Sedona too. I definitely want to talk, talk about that and a little bit more about your fight career, but let's go, let's go in that order. So sure. you go, the fight for the forgotten really is the, it's you championing the underdogs. I mean, the pygmies mm. are a race of people that yeah. have been bullied by everybody that's around them because they're literally smaller. Yeah. Anthropologists call them the most oppressed people group on planet Earth. If there's one group that's the most oppressed, it's them. And uh, so that's the most bullied. So, so, so therein you see that, you know, the one who was bullied in the most horrific way. I've never heard a story worse than the one you just told, hmm. you know, in person. Yeah. And then you go find the people that have been the most bullied in the world and you go there to help them you know i mean that's a it's yeah. really interesting through line from the yeah. past well maybe i need to tell you a vision story real quick sure I think you'd probably dig that um so i've had two visions in my life i might have time to share both of them um but both were sober not plant medicine or any sort of psychedelic induced uh, or conjured up it's actually 11 months sober and this was at 23 years old and I was a depressed, drunk, drug addict where I was dying of my addiction and depression. And I was a shell of myself, although on the outside, everything was looking good. Um, yeah. UFC career. Yeah. Uh, youngest guy at the highest level. Every Sports Illustrated, ESPN, like all these places, um, you know, I'm on TMZ right after... Lindsay Lohan right before Honey Boo Boo, you know, like mm -hmm. prime real estate mm -hmm. on TV. <laughs> uh, good company to keep. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I'm literally a missing person for eight weeks because I'm off on a binge. No one knows where I am. I'm supposed to be helping Shane Carwin train for Brock Lesnar. Um, his main lost, training bro. partner. What's that? That's why I lost. That's why I lost. I do have a nasty <laughs> arm triangle like that. And uh, I wasn't there to help. But, um, no, Shane's incredible. So is Brendan. Yeah. I was main trainer partners with Brendan and Shane. That's awesome. And Rashad. And uh, Anyways, the team had to ask me to leave. They had to kick me off the team. A year later, they asked me back on. But, um, you know, after the Ultimate Fighter, they're like, we want you to come be part of this team. Train with guys that were literally on my walls as a kid. Like I have their posters on my wall when I'm 13, 14, right. 15 years old. Now I'm main training partners with them or going to the house for cookouts and hanging out with these UFC champions and a pretty surreal, um, moment, but, or moments, but I remember getting my hand raised and thinking like, is this it? Is this all? Like I was being driven by hate or driven by wanting to be accepted and only feeling like I'm this is my identity and this is my value and my worth to society right. in this world is like who I am as a fighter. Right. Win or lose, I had an excuse to use. And so eight weeks, I miss my, I, I get a voicemail from my best friend. My mailbox is full. And the one that was most recent, that was the longest and probably took up the most space was like an eight minute voicemail from my best friend. Eight minutes. 
who leaves eight minute voicemail? And this was before they like cut them off and before you have that setting or something. And I have like 80 voicemails, the eight minute voice message, the last one. And he says, I can't, this is how it starts. I can't believe you missed my wedding. I can't believe my best man didn't show up. And, um, I was that far gone on the drugs that I crushed a dude I only wanted to love and like left this dark cloud over his most beautiful day, his wedding day. Right. And so it was a hurt person who could only hurt people that I only wanted to love mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but hurt him. And so that was really hard pill to swallow. And I probably should have gone to rehab then, but I didn't. I had a spiritual experience. I say, God loved the hell out of me, blessed the mess out of me so I could just love others. Um, what I found out was it's one thing to fight against people, but it's a whole other thing to fight for people. Mm. And that brought me fulfillment. Wow. And so at 23, I, I started helping. I heard a quote, no act of kindness, no matter how small ever goes wasted. Which I love that quote. And uh, I don't know who said it, maybe Aristotle or Socrates, something like that. And I was just like, that. Whatever that is, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to start small. So I was in Denver. I got kicked off my fight team. Brennan was part of it. They literally took a vote, and it was 32 or 33 to 1. Trevor Whitman, if you know Trevor, Coach yeah. T, Justin Gaethje's coach, Rashad, uh, uh, Rose Namajunas, Brendan, Shane, Nate Marquardt, those kind of guys, Dwayne Bain, Gludwig. Um, T was the only one that voted for me to stay. They're like, we just got to get him to treatment. We got to do something to support him. And uh, then he said, he brought me in his office, just like, I can't go against the entire team. Can't go against Brendan Shane, yeah, uh, sure. Dwayne, all these guys. Um, Elliot Marshall, if you know him. Anyways, like a who's who of like guys that I looked up to and loved and admired and appreciated said, like, you can't be here. Like, you're too toxic. So that was a tough pill to swallow. And my childhood dream that became a reality is now being ripped away from me. And I can't even live my dream that's turned into a nightmare. Like I'm losing that. It seems like there was some, there was some aspect of you that was so conditioned to not being loved and not Mm. being worthy and not being, you know, like some part of you felt like you didn't deserve it probably on the inside. And so the self-sabotage to create the situation where they would actually treat you in the way that you were treating yourself. Yeah. You know, like you we always want to find accord with the world and that's why self-love is so important in those practices Mm. because we will find and create a situation that mirrors the way that we feel about ourselves because that's what's the most comfortable otherwise Mm -hmm. there's dissonance if we hate ourselves but people love us we're like this feels wrong yeah you know something is off here so we either have to figure out then to love ourselves the way that people love us or we actually do something to get people to treat us in the way that we're treating ourselves. and you know that's the classic you know impetus for all of the self-sabotage and so that's you know the reality that you created at that yeah, point that's powerful um because that's what happened and it was, it was weird because it would always have to be like a mountaintop experience i would have a massive crash almost like i didn't feel like you deserved to be on like that i was good enough yeah you're like well i'm on a fucking mountaintop this feels wrong let me go yeah. back down in the gutter let me go let me crash and burn let me tank that's wild to think about man um I'll probably need to go to counseling and, and talk, <laughs> talk to my counselor about it. I, I do do that. I go once a week and I love it. Yeah. Um, it's helped a lot the last two years, three years. But you had a vision. Um, so let's go, let's go right dive there. Dive into you the vision. vision. So yeah, I, I, uh, I literally, um, 
I started working at the Denver Children's Hospital, became mm-hmm. an official volunteer there. And what was so cool about that, bro, is I did it for about mm, nine, 10 months and like really immersed myself in it. Went through night school to become an official volunteer, wheeled the kids around in the wheelchairs and just went from room to room and had a blast for over six months. And I do that every week, sometimes multiple times a week. And eventually I did a big thing with, uh, with the UFC, I believe an HD net or ju- just some MMA like journalism stuff. And they came out and filmed cause I had Rashad come, Brendan come, Shane come, Dwayne come, coach T, Justin Gaethje. Um, and we went around and visited these children at the children's hospital and dude, they lit up. Some of them were playing the UFC video games when we would walk in with some of the guys are playing with, mm. right. And just blew the kids away. But then I helped at the rescue mission, at risk youth group and just had my head on a swivel looking to make a difference somewhere. Like I think we have a bullying prevention curriculum that we created and we have in martial arts academies and it's free right now because of COVID, especially like helping equip them to have an online resource to still teach their kids. Yeah. And we instruct instructors how to instruct this curriculum. It's called heroes in waiting. And basically what's a hero? The premise is just basically a hero, is someone who sees a need and takes action. Mm-hmm. They don't need a cape or superhuman strength they need a compassionate heart a humble heart that's what a hero has they just do the next right thing they just see a need take action this is the right thing to do so anyways i i uh am kind of all over the place and i basically say a prayer and i wasn't a praying dude meditating dude i wasn't any of that and uh but i needed an answer and i was hungry to hear something if that makes sense like my soul was craving it and I desired it. I needed it. I had to have it. And I said a prayer by myself and said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? That's all I said, literally completely sober. And I'm taken in this vision and I'm in the rainforest and I'm walking down a footpath and then I hear drumming and I'm literally clearing vines and thickets out of the way. And I'm on this footpath that's barely, barely wide enough for my feet like a smaller footpath and um i'm going through this massive thick lush jungle and then i get closer here singing very distinct singing like almost like a yodeling a tribal yodeling and then i get into this clearing and i see these twig and leaf huts i see these huts and i meet these people and the people the first person i see i don't talk with them or anything but i see them and kind of meet them He's coughing and his ribs are poking out and he's starving. I know that he's sick and that he's hungry and that he's thirsty and that he's poor. He's oppressed. I knew that I knew that he was enslaved. I just knew it. And uh, I came out of that vision and felt like they were forgotten, that they felt forgotten by God and forgotten by people, that they were the forgotten people. So right on top of a piece of paper, forgotten. Under that I wrote, hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, oppressed, enslaved. And I felt nuts. I, I, dude, I cried. I cried that much, like a puddle, a little whatever you call that, grandma's mm-hmm. cookie-sized puddle. And um, I wept for these people I didn't know, didn't know who they were, where they were, and I was actually confused by it. I actually felt a little crazy. Um, was really questioning myself. Did I just have some sort of psychotic break or like some sort of? This was such a psychedelic experience that was so real, not even psychedelic. It was like it happened 
wasn't something where I was observing. It was something I was there. It was so real, so vivid. And when I came back out of that vision, like it broke me, bro. And I was confused because I was just limited knowledge. Like I thought rainforest, Amazon, like Brazilians, Peruvians, um, or I thought India, or I thought like Thailand or right. Asia, but I didn't think Africa. But the people in my vision clearly had dark skin. Mm. They were black. And I was like, who are these smaller people with darker skin who are so oppressed and hated? And um, I didn't communicate with them. I just had this knowledge about them. Well, bro, I tell a guy three days later, his name's Caleb. And he had wrote a book with Bear Grylls. And like mm -hmm. he was a survivalist and humanitarian. And he lived with the, or visited the Vanuatu people who invented bungee jumping. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They build the platforms. They tie vines around their feet. They jump. They choose one person from the Except family. The bungee doesn't pull them back up. No. It just barely keeps them from fucking smashing on the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. You guys should look this up later because it, it's, uh, like it's one of their rites of passage. And the braver you are is how long you cut your bungee so yep. that you just hit the ground yep. a little bit. Yeah. If you, if you, if you hit your head and die, you were cursed. If you don't hit your head, you were a coward and you're, <laughs> You're cursed. And if you hit your head and you survive, your lands, your yam harvest is going to be blessed. And and you get whatever a girl warrior. is watching. Oh, and they're, they're like, oh, oh wow. You better. He's the man. Yeah. I'm going to cut the cord real real close. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I try to impress the the village uh, ladies. But you know, anyways. Um, I'm going to cut the cord real short and then go fucking be a good hunter or something. <laughs> there you go. Be like, fuck this. <laughs> be a master hunter. Yeah, exactly. Provider. Whatever. Y'all don't want this meat? Yeah. That's cool. So I'm not going to gonna fucking crush my neck. Yeah. I don't need to be a farmer. I can go <laughs> yeah. hunt. I'll go get the meat. Yeah. You get the sweet meat from the forest. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I have this vision and Caleb also with that book, um, he lived with the Maasai people, the Maasai. And he, he was who I went with and I was given that warrior um, spear. Anyways, uh, I tell Caleb this vision and whenever I finish one, I thought I was never going to tell a soul about this vision because I thought like, this is too out there. It's a little crazy. I, and I would think if someone told me they had this vision that they're little nuts. So it's just a little, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be accepting and open-minded, but I would just be like, huh, okay. Uh, so I never experienced this in this life and know, knew that this kind of life existed, if that makes sense. And I never had anything like it since for 10 years. But I, um, I tell Caleb, he smiles, he leans in, he nods his head. I'm like, what is going on? Like he was tracking with me with the vision. He was following me. And I, I stopped. I go, what? He goes, I know who they are. And I go, what? He goes, those are the Mabuti Pygmy people. For the pygmy people, they live in the Congo Basin rainforest in like nine African countries. I've been to two of them. I've met them. And if there's anyone that's forgotten in this world, it's the pygmies. He goes, and I'm, I'm blown away. He said, I'm so, I was supposed to go back in three and a half weeks from now. But my wife asked me yesterday if I could say a prayer, which is unique for her, and if I would cancel my trip unless I had a sign. He goes, the reason is the rebels just took over the airport, the one million person city we're flying into. They're beheading people in the streets. They're cannibalizing the pygmies. They're hunting them in the forest, killing them, cooking them, and eating their flesh, thinking that if they go into battle, that bullets will fly right through them, that that's what the witch doctors say. And he goes, 
the three people I was taking with me all canceled their trip yesterday or today because their husbands, their fathers in the U.S. State Department says, for no reason whatsoever should any American go there. You're on your own. Um, and so his wife asked him, said, you're married. We have a newborn. Like, I think this trip might not be in the cards for you unless you're supposed to go. So he says a prayer. Then we meet. And I just had the vision. I think the day he prayed. And then all of a sudden he goes, look, bro, if you had a vision, if you go, I'll go. <laughs> I'm like, what? Mm. You're telling me how wild it is, crazy it is. There's no place to fly into. Like, what are we going to do? He goes, we'll figure it out when we get to Uganda. I mean, we'll figure out how to get to Congo from Uganda. Like just mm. once we get there, we'll meet a pilot. He goes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? And uh, so I told him, I don't know, man, I need to think about this. And he said, the one thing I know you need to hear right now is if you don't go, you'll never know. You'll always question, what if? I was like, Whew. Powerful words. Right? What if? And me, even before I met Caleb and before I had this vision, and while I was fighting and just selfish about myself, you know, like my goals, my dreams, we're just living in that darkness. I don't think I was ever totally selfish, but I... I wasn't totally, and I'm still not totally selfless, but I try to aim, strive for that, you know? But man, I always thought my greatest fear would be being on my deathbed at an older age and wonder, have all the ideas or the goals or the dreams or the people that I was supposed to help, the impact I was supposed to make, like the ghost or the, the, things I should have brought to life and didn't that are dying with me that only I could have brought to life or only you could have brought to life. Like right. that's my worst fear. Yeah. And, leaving, uh, leaving those if onlys and what ifs on the yeah. table, you know, yeah. like those are the things that'll eat you up. Yeah. It's not the ones like, Oh yeah, I tried that. Got my mm -hmm. ass kicked. Didn't work. Like you don't regret those. No, you, know, those you tried. Are, you tried. And like, all right, whatever. Yeah. But it's the ones that are like, I wonder what would have happened if I did this. Right. What I if? wonder what would have happened. Yeah. So that I'll, I'll try to condense the story because uh, I do want to mention Sedona. But dude, three and a half weeks later, Caleb, Colin, and I. Colin's a buddy of mine who, if if someone looks up my book, Fight for the Forgotten, the cover photo, like on the cover of the book, was my first hour in the Congo. <laughs> And, uh, and it was completely candid and it was at an orphanage where all their parents were either murdered by the rebel groups or had died of HIV. So these kids that are crawling on me like a human jungle gym, which I loved, mm. um, I'm like walking and there's like three or four kids hanging off me. I'm like 10 around me or something. And, uh, it's just a gorgeous photo of those, those kids, bright smiles, you know? And I, I, I don't even explain it in the book that that's where we were. That's what happened to their parents, that these kids have HIV. Like they've been dealt the toughest hand in the world. They don't have clean water. They're start. I mean, like they're sick. It's, it, I mean, just horrific. But bro, I've never had so much joy with some kids before than I have in the forest and with the pygmies and with these orphans. And um, so anyways, we land on this rainforest runway that we were literally circling the the uh, runway for 20 minutes. And the pilot's like, if we can't land soon, we're gonna have to turn back to Uganda. But literally the whole village came and they're using machetes to clear the runway for us so we can land. Cause they don't know when the last time a plane landed there was. Wow. They said it was over a decade. And um, we land there 
we get in a truck, we go for six to eight hours. We got on motorcycles, go for an hour or two through the rainforest on these little footpaths. Then we get in a dugout canoe from a tree and we go across this river with crocodiles and hippos. And I'm like, where are we? Like, I never had a plan to go to Africa. Maybe a safari one day. Um, I never wanted to go visit a tribe or anything like that, but I was just called to it, had a vision for it. And we go across the river. Dude, the people that are taking us across the river can't swim. I'm like, we're in a pygmy sized canoe, not a big pygmy sized mm-hmm. canoe. We got our gear, our tents, all this stuff. We get out, we hike for about an hour or two after we cross, no, probably 30 minutes or an hour. So, dude, the journey, right? I mean, think, people think going from Australia to the US is crazy, like 36 minutes or something, and uh, or 36 hours. Right, they think that's a long time, and and the to get there to go to Congo. I mean, you're taking five or six planes. You're getting a private plane or like a charter plane with just three seater, four seater, landing on a grass runway. You're all this crazy stuff, right? And um, uh, we get out, we're walking, and all of a sudden we hear drumming. We're clearing thickets and vines out of the way our guide has and translator has machetes that's clearing the path for us. I mean, people have walked walk this before, but it gets thicker, right? So you have to clear it. We hear drumming. Then we hear singing. We come into a clearing, bro. First guy we meet, his ribs are poking out. He's coughing. Same person from the vision. So He's what got is this, tuberculosis. What does this mean about the world to you? I don't, I, I like, still you, am like trying when to this, understand this it. can't be this is beyond the realm of coincidence right <clears throat> so you're oh, someone yeah. who's i i really give credit to like anybody can listen to your vision and it won't really land for them because it will land a little bit they'll be like wow that's an amazing story yep. but when this happens to you and it was your vision and you know it to be true then at that point you have to say now there's things about the world that i have to adjust my worldview to understand oh yeah there's some mechanism at play which makes it possible for me to have a vision of a potential future reality if i make the choice to go to go and it will be exactly as it is and then it will be the kind of direction that my life purpose was meant to go so what the fuck is that right like have you have you just really sat and pondered what that means about the world i'm about to (laughs) (laughs) i need to because bro i it blew me away i was speechless not only was I speechless, I'll tell you what I physically did. Because we get into the vision. Even me just saying that is kind of crazy. We get into the vision. Right. Me and these two other guys, which Caleb was about to cancel his trip. Colin had no freaking clue about it. And in three and a half weeks, we're, we step into the vision that I told them about. That they've seen the paper, I wrote it down, I tell them it, and all of a sudden they're experiencing it freaking with me, bro. All right, so here's my my shot at it. Real fast, I want to hear your shot. But just my physical thing, I literally had to, I went into a full squat, put my elbows on my knees, hands on my face, and I'm looking out, speechless, my jaws literally opened, like, and I take a knee. Because Caleb and Colin are grabbing my traps on both sides or my shoulders. And they're literally both so stoked and excited and blown away, almost speechless to where all they could say was, this is your vision. 
this is your vision. <laughs> You're like, I know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I look up at them. I look out. I'm just like, it's happening. We're here. We are here. Be here now. Right? Like we're present in the vision that I told you guys about. And I, I couldn't explain it. And so I want to hear your shot at it, but that's just physically what happened to me where I was like, I couldn't stand. I was weak in the knees. What's interesting is I just did a podcast with Matthew McConaughey who wrote in his book, Green Lights. He had, he had a vision where <clears throat> he was floating down a river, which <sighs> was like the Amazon. And wow. then there was an African tribesman on the side. What? And he had, what was interesting is he had a wet dream in that, it was a dream, sorry, <laughs> not a vision, but it was a dream. And for whatever reason, he ejaculated as a grown man who's had plenty of wild sexual experiences yeah, at sure. Chateau Marmont, you know? <laughs> and he had a he had a wet dream and woke up with his vision. It was so powerful. First, he went down and floated the Amazon, and it was an incredibly powerful, spiritual, wow. like, life-giving experience where he lived sure. that vision. And then he went to Africa to find that had this, an unbelievable experience with the doggone people in Africa. Wow. And so Which, where are they at again i'm not even sure but they they have like a lot of myths about how they came from the stars like the oh, okay and like it's a very interesting thing that he found but it was hard to get to for sure I know someone that knows them somehow yeah so anyways so, these things are happening these dreams and he had that he had that dream twice so the first time he floated the amazon and then he had another the same dream the same wet the also wet dream with the african people crazy. and he was like oh i gotta go see the now i went and did the river but they were african people now i gotta go to africa these things are completely implausible. Yeah. Like for the normal worldview, for the normal paradigm. So what is Un this what does this mean? And and I think that the only thing that makes sense to me and my stab at it, and who knows, right? Like this is but our souls or our, our consciousness is hmm. connected to the collective and somehow connected to a timeline of what our potential wow. is and what we need. And it's like it's conspiring with the knowledge of these specific people of this specific yeah. place of the earth itself of that river itself it's connected to the collective consciousness of all beings including the inanimate beings that we think don't have spirits but the moment you take ayahuasca you realize everything has a spirit wow and it's connected in such a way that it's all conspiring it's like they're all sitting down at a kitchen table and they're like hey soul of matthew mcconaughey or hey soul of justin wren and it's the man with the ribs and it's the land itself and it's the people that are like hey man like we could really use your help so how do we do this and soul's like all right i got it Isn't i'll just when wild? he's ready when he's open we'll drop in a vision and that'll give him the opportunity and of course there's free will there's a chance he had to go make the choice to get on that raft and float the amazon and go to the people you had to make the choice to fly into this you know resistance ridden you know revolution yeah, renegade place you had to make the choice but ultimately you have to understand at that point that our soul or whatever you want to call it something that's connected to the collective is conspiring with the entire world to put you in the right place at the right time which means there's benevolent forces acting on our behalf wow. at all times that's so you wild. have to you have to really believe that that yeah, the benevolence well, the benevolence of the universe is working with you and conspiring for you wow when whether we want to acknowledge it or not it's fucking happening and it we is. just have to get open enough you had to say that prayer open to open the channel into that flow and then make the choice and go and make the choice make the choice yeah i like bro my life would be so different i don't think i i want to say i would still be here but i don't think it would be without purpose without passion without like 
So, so I, uh, a mentor of mine, who's also one of our biggest donors of Fight for the Forgotten, he asked me a question once and it made me think, we are just talking. And he goes, Justin, he goes, let me ask you a question. Are you wanting to be a man of success or a man of significance? Have you ever asked yourself that? And I go, wow, no, I haven't. And he said, well, you should ask yourself. He goes, the reason, he's 80 years old. His name's Roger Almond, and he sold his company for $80 million, something like that. An incredible guy. Still lives in the same house that he like married his wife in like 50 years ago, or 60. I think it was freaking 60 years. We celebrated their anniversary, either mm. 50 or 60th. Anyways, he goes, because I believe that if you become a man of success, you might miss being a man of significance if that's what you're striving for. But he goes, but I believe that if you become a man of significance, success follows. Like just be, be someone that, that is a significant addition to this world and to people around you and like success comes. He goes, but don't strive for success and miss being a significant part of the community, this world right. and this life. And yeah, man, it, it blew me away. I mean, the first night we were there, before we took that like six, eight hour drive into the rainforest and we needed to shower, we needed to rest up. Bro, we stayed in a little motel, like a mud hut basically in this town in the forest. We had, I think I had eight bullet holes in my, in my freaking walls and my door. Like when I woke up, cause we got there when it was dark, I knew there was holes in the wall, but it wasn't until the morning that the sunshine started coming through the bullet holes. Can you, I mean, like, can you yeah. picture that? Where like sun rays, rays of sunshine are hitting your floor through the walls and the door because there's bullet holes there. And I'm like, where am I? What am I doing? But bro, it gave me such a life to live for. Um, it literally gave me a life to live for. And um, so after that happened, you know, I, I literally, the two, three weeks we were there, I literally was beat up spirit broken heart crushed felt demoralized because now i'm seeing human suffering to a level i never knew existed even more suffering than you'd gone through in your own life without a doubt perspective yeah and I, like as much as i think i can put myself in their shoes through my context of my story and the way that i felt oppressed or forgotten or bullied downtrodden um, bro, I can't even compare to the suffering they have, but at the same time, I can't even compare, couldn't then compare to the amount of true, real joy that they own, that they own. I've never said that before, but I see your cover there. Own the day, right? Own your life. Mm -hmm. Own the day, own your life, bro. They own the joy that like is present in their life because they have each other through community, through, community, through, tribe. through tribe. Bro, they say a Swahili proverb that I love. It says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And they say, like, we need each other. It takes a, it takes a village to raise a child, right? But they also say it takes a village to bury a child. That was my first introduction of the water crisis, was holding a little boy named Andy Bo, cupping the back of his head, holding his little hand, and his mom's hand was on the back of my hand. She's on the other side of me sitting across. We're in the twig leaf hut. 
and he takes his last breath. Blood comes out of his ears and onto my hands. And I'm looking across at his mother, like I'm looking across at you and we'd have Annie Bo right between us, right? And um, I knew she already lost her husband because of dirty water. She already lost her other son because of dirty water. She just lost Andy Bo because of dirty water. And I'm looking over at her, cross at her, and she's not wearing a shirt. It's just common in the village. And I can count every single rib down her sternum because she's starving and she's sick. And she's got an inflated belly just like Andy Bo, like corpse does, because they have all these parasites in them from dirty water. And, um, bro, it broke me. It crushed me. I wept. I cried. I literally had his blood on my hands when I started digging his grave. And they had just named me Efeosa. Efeosa means the man who loves us. And then I grabbed the shovel because I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm a big, strong guy, capable. They need to mourn. So the community came together, which now I had been invited in on, adopted in on, um, and they named me Efeosa Mabutimangbo. And so Efeosa, the man who loves us, and then Mabutimangbo, the big pygmy. Um, so that's why I go by that, is I couldn't promise them land, couldn't promise them water, couldn't promise them food. I'm not going to make false promises. I'm not going to get people's hopes up and not deliver. I'm not going to tell them, yeah, I'll come do this and not come back and do it. I didn't know how to do it. So, but the chief looked at me and said, everyone else, this is where the vision came full circle. Chief pulls us over on the last day and says, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. When they said, when he said forgotten, like I remember tears filling up in my eyes to where it was hard to see him. Mm. Like he was blurry because the tears welled up in my eyes. And Caleb and Colin put their hands on my shoulder because the day before I asked them, I need confirmation that I'm supposed to dedicate my life to this. They go, are you kidding? What more do you need? You had a vision and it happened. We're here like, we're we're here because of this vision. And I'm like, I don't know. I just, it's been overwhelming. The devastation, the destruction, the the oppression. I go, man, I I just don't know that. I, I told him this. I go, the vision I got is I could spend my whole life trying to help, trying to make an impact. And the vision I got, visual, I do a lot of visualization like for fighting, right? So I can see things in my mind, but like that was like through practice. Right. This just happened. And I didn't practice or try to conjure up a vision. It just, just was. And I remember them saying, Justin, like this couldn't have just happened. And I go, I know, I just need something because the visual I got, guys, this is the day before I left for my first trip. I could spend my whole life trying and it's like emptying the ocean with an eyedropper. Like, is it going to matter? Is Would I even notice? Not would anyone else even notice? Would I even notice? Would the collective, would our, my creator, would, any, would they even notice that I was there right. and that I helped? Um, because if I get something that tells me it will, it'll matter. Like I'll dedicate my life to this. I just need a confirmation. And they thought I was crazy, but Caleb said a prayer for me that night that I would have a sign. The chief the next day says to Caleb and Colin standing by me, but he says to me, everyone else calls us the forest people. We call ourselves the forgotten. He goes, we don't have a voice. Can you 
help us have one. He's not looking at Caleb or Colin. He's looking directly at me. Can you help us have one? He gave me the one tangible thing, the one practical thing I could say yes to. The platform that I had through fighting that I just sure. recently discovered, or just being an American, like having free speech and stuff. Like I can come talk on behalf of them, right? Share their story, their message. Um, so I cried and I teared up. I said yes. I said yes, but my soul, I think, screamed yes. Yeah. Like this is what I'll do. This is what I can do. And uh, so then you founded, and I'm going to speed up, sure. speed this up, just so we yeah, can get yeah, to yeah. some other areas. But Definitely. you founded Fight for the Forgotten. Yeah. You've been out there digging wells. How many wells is your organization? I think we just completed 73. 73 wells, and that's providing water to over 60,000 people daily. It's incredible. Every day. You know, one of the, one of the things that really has bothered me about <clears throat> the way that the world has handled this lockdown situation is I did a little bit of research and there was a couple different organizations that estimate the cost it would take to provide clean water for every people of the world. Yeah. Right? Because you've, you've drilled 73 wells, 60, you know, 60,000 people served. I mean, how much money has the organization raised in order to be able to do that roughly? I know that's going to be a hard accounting to do. I mean, but since 2011, but it's seven figures. Yeah. So some millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. The estimations are that it would take about $120 billion to get clean water for the whole that's world. That's so wild. We could do it so fast. We just did a $2 trillion bailout like this. We just made that money appear out of nowhere because we were locked down we just That's made so two trillion wild. so and it would take a fraction of that to get clean water for the whole world and then all of these millions of people would have clean water forever yeah. because the wells we are would stop 3.4 billion people from dying or sorry million people 3.4 million people exactly. from dying every year two million children under the age of five years old and that's the, and that's two the million antibos people don't have this perspective of like we're just creating money we're depreciating all of the money that's actually wow. the, the resource that we earn and we're, we're creating it we could just decide that if we all decided just and decide. regardless whatever we want to lock down we want to create this money today but we could just tomorrow. do that now like we just proved let's that we this, created two year. trillion dollars out of nothing out of thin air and we could just go how eh. much more is that than the 120 billion like percentage wise uh, how many fucking, how many times could we end the water crisis exactly like um, like 18 times more or something like oh that or 16 times more we could end the water crisis 18 times yeah like what that, we just created like that and that's just a fraction and that's of what literally we're the biggest spending. bully on planet earth is the water crisis because to me it preys on the weakest most vulnerable susceptible children in the world and these children are put up against this field of giants that have names like E. coli or cholera or typhoid or some sort of crazy parasite that I've had that they live with every day. And um, it's just wild, man, um, to think about that. But the thing is, is that 120 billion or 80 billion, whatever it was, could fix it. But it's got to be done in a slower, more sustainable way that's practical for the people that need it the most. Because it's not every community is a blue, uh, what do you call that? Like a blueprint or a cookie cutter solution. Right. Everyone, they have to be, so what we do, why we don't have 700 wells in nine years is because we empower the locals. So we equip them with the tools, we educate them with the knowledge, and then we empower them to be the change they want to see in their own community, their own country. So they, so it's countrymen changing countrymen instead of, or their own country. 
because they have pride in that sure and it gives them that sense of purpose and that worth when they're a part of digging the wells i mean there's the right way to do it and then there's the the way that would be helpful the only the the only reason i brought that up the only reason i brought that up was because there's over two hundred thirty thousand broken wells in africa right now billions of wasted charitable dollars because they went in they had a quota they had a mission a vision all the right reasons the great intent the good heart but they didn't see that there's a great book called when helping hurts Mm. and uh it just talks about like the long lasting repercussions of well-intentioned charity that's improperly like um implemented i saw that when i went to africa because i was part of a I was part of a group that was going there in the slums of the Soweto slum in Kenya and in Uganda and different places. And obviously the HIV yep. and, and the AIDS had taken away a lot of the fathers yeah. in there and also the war and also the you know genocides and different you know civil unrest, all of these different reasons. There was a whole batch of kids that particularly the young men that were growing up without any kind of discipline or father figure and they were getting you know, going into gangs and different things, whatever they could do. And so this group went in to teach them traditional martial arts. Now I'm not a master in traditional martial arts, but I've studied enough martial arts since I was five years old. It actually, it actually ended. Unfortunately, it was called MAV men against uh, men against violence and victimization. Um, but unfortunately it didn't last, but it was, it was a beautiful, like a beautiful idea. And we did some good out there. We would just go there and we would stand up and and just run them through some kata and run them through some discipline and like some, some people basic probably meditation. still doing that there yeah and and it was it was a really beautiful kind of concept but what i also saw there was that while we were there because we were an organization and we had some money yeah. you know that was ready to deploy we also built like a little hospital yep the best and brightest africans that i saw were the ones that were trying to get grant money they weren't actually trying to you know implement necessarily the most productive thing for their community they were they realized that the best way for them to get ahead the best way for them to get access to resources for them to actually move and advance with upward mobility was to be clever enough to get grant money Hmm. and so yeah i kind of recognize it like when you have that much money coming in and it's available it's just we're creating a game in which we're gamifying the ones who can get the grant money yeah rather than gamifying the way that they can actually help and allowing them and supporting them to really help their community in the best way so it was a it was a weird dynamic of yes we want to help but we got to be mindful you got to be how mindful. we help you have to be mindful and you have to be careful every step of the way you have to include the community in on it yeah say is this culturally sound is this something you want desire would you take the reins and make it yours would you own it would you yeah. protect it, care for it, nurture it? Um, and when they have buy-in, dude, the sky's the limit of change, transformation. Yeah. And, where, and that the people that the people that you empower to do that are genuinely not corrupt and right. are going to actually serve the people in the so best way. I think one of the greatest gifts that I haven't really acknowledged from the vision is that the vision took out a lot of the BS. Um I went straight to the people that were suffering, right? right? And most of the people that you're talking about writing the grants or that's what they get sucked into, that's what they learn, how they can get resources. And a lot of these nonprofits that start up over here raise so much money, have so much money to give, but truly the impact dollar for dollar, what they do, you don't see it as much, like what it could really do. right? And the reason is because it's like this pyramid and they 
the people from the West go to those brightest, brilliant people that know how to game the system that you're talking about at the mm. top of the pyramid. And it never really trickles down to the people at the bottom right. that need it the most. So what happened with the vision was it brought me straight to those people yeah. that needed the most. And if you can change there and they're at the bottom, the foundation, you change that, it trickles upwards. And the people at the top then notice, oh, what's going on here? Because these people are having their lives transformed and changed. And, 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 then, and then those high up corrupt government officials start coming to us saying, how do we get involved mm -hmm. with what you're doing in our community? Because we need this. Right. Um, which was really cool because we've seen 1,651 people in Congo and now in Uganda transition out of a life of actual slavery and into freedom with over 3,000 acres of land that we bought back in their name. So we buy it back in the name of the pygmy people, the strongest thing in uh, African courts is being bought in the name of a tribe. And then started four sustainable farms over, yeah, 70 wells, like empowering them, empowering them, empowering them so they can be the change they want to see in their community. And bro, I've seen miracles happen where start with one kid that was devastating and I forever want to like, honor his legacy of his one and a half year old life that then has now changed over 60,000 people's lives. Yeah. Um, and story has gone out to, to millions of people. Yeah, no doubt, man. And, um, yeah, I want to go talk a little bit about community because yeah. when I was in, when I was in Kenya and the Soweto slums for people who don't know, it's there. one of the gnarliest slums in yeah. the whole world. I there. mean, there are people in shanty mm -hmm. aluminum shacks in with these kind of like rolling like undulating not hills but they're like gradients and things yeah. and there's no bathrooms there's no septic there's no anything so well just the sewage it out in the street yeah the right sewage just through. runs down and if you're downhill in a shack you got the sewage that's running they do their best but there's sewage just running yeah. through the bottom of their i mean it's mm -hmm. one of the gnarliest situations but to see the joy <laughs> as you said in the kids yeah i mean there was like an old tattered soccer ball and you know and like we ended up we reckon they were like kicking it around it was like kind of flat so we acquired a couple balls and a football <laughs> and we were playing and the joy that they for. had from that and just they were already joyful but then they had this and it was like it was like christmas times 100 yeah. so, you know yeah. like you go to a christmas here in the west and people are just ripping open presents like eh, eh, yeah there you get like one you know one good nerf football for the one village for, yeah and they're like Every fired trip, up yeah. and they're chanting and singing and everybody's like so happy and just the joy but really all of that comes from even with their distended bellies and the, the struggles yeah. they're going through they're in a community they feel they feel Strength. like a sense of belonging and Boy. a sense of like these are my brothers and sisters and when you have that it, it's almost like it's so much more important than we give credence to we think that we need all of this material things to make us happy we don't hmm. we need we need tribe. We need other people. And whatever we're going through, that's Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, like where he talks about in the most challenging situations when people feel like they have tribe, they're happier than in the most affluent, comfortable situations because wow. we need each other. You know, we, we need, need to other. be able to share our vulnerable truth, to allow people to see the absolute rawest truth of who we are and to see them and to feel held and to feel yeah. like we have, we have people who are there for us and with us. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's that's what I learned most from the pygmy people living with them. Because I lived there for a year at one time, uh, slept in the twig leaf huts, 
So the huts are only about four and a half, five feet tall. Um, so the roof is, or the ceiling is five foot tall inside. And uh, if I sleep straight, sometimes, depending on what hut I was in, what village, like my feet would be outside of the hut some. Like it's not even six feet long inside. And um, it's, you only go inside the hut to sleep. I mean, or to rest because you're not feeling well or it's hot out and take a nap. But literally you go in whenever it's dark, you come out right whenever the sun starts coming up and then you might take a midday rest in there. And anyways, they, they have a few Swahili proverbs that I absolutely love with community. I told you if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together because this life's a marathon, not a sprint. And, but they also have a few others that I really love, which is, um, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep in a closed room with a mosquito. <laughs> mm. Or they say, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep in a hut with a mosquito. And uh, and it's tongue in cheek, but it's so true. I mean, I almost died of malaria. I've had it three times, but I almost died the first time. And the second, third time, the last time gave me cerebral malaria. So I had parasites in my brain. First time I had 65 to 70% of my bloodstream were parasites. I had... Lost my peripheral vision. I had a blackwater fever, so um, I couldn't urinate for five days. Five days, couldn't pee. When I finally did, it was the darkest black coffee or motor oil that you've ever seen. And it was sticky, and it was like parasites that had eaten my red blood cells and like pooped out my red blood cell. Like, like that's what I was like in my body. Sixty-five to seventy percent of my body was this black goo, blackwater fever. I think 50% of people that get it die, maybe 25%. It's on Google that way at least, and almost died from it. So the only reason I say that is if a mosquito can make that much of a difference in my life, uh, an insect that we don't think really has a brain and you know thoughts and compassion, or if that mosquito can make that much of a difference that doesn't even weigh a gram, can take out my body, 265 pounds, which I can fight a six foot 10 guy, on the ultimate fighter and choke him unconscious, but this mosquito kicks my ass. You know, how much more of a difference can you make in someone's life or a community's life or Austin or Texas or the United States or this world? Yeah. You know, how much more of a difference whenever we come together as a collective tribe and community, how much more of a difference can we make when we're united in a path, like you're saying, have those souls having conversations saying we need to go when, when Justin's ready, we need to go give him, drop in, give him this vision, just drop a vision in his lap or in his brain, mm. soul, and then see what happens. See if he says yes or no. Yep. And uh, so that's what happened with me and in, in fit for service, bro. Like I was lacking. I was homesick for that community, that tribe that I and had that, over there. And that had a that had a consequence because that, you know, the story about your, you know, near suicidal attempt, that yeah. wasn't that wasn't your last suicide attempt. You know, you'd already started oh. the fight for the forgotten. You'd yeah. had your sense of purpose, but still deep inside you was something that was missing. So tell us, yeah. you know, tell us about that, you know, most recent dark moment before sure. then, you know, because this is something you shared when with the fit for service community. It was really beautiful how you shared it. Thanks. But um, but yeah, I mean, there was obviously still something lacking, something not healed that drove you to, you know, an attempt to take your life again. Sure. Yeah. So at 13, I was suicidal, fought it off for 10 years, attempted it though at 23. Um, 
miraculously made it. And, uh, 10 years later, I lived this beautiful life that I was able to help quite a few people and at least strive to, and think it really did make an impact, but still I, there was this missing link or, and I think it was self-love and community and tribe. Like I was living here, my health and some other things like just kept me from truly living in Africa with the people I love the most. And it was like, I didn't feel at home here. Super strange feeling when you connect with a tribe and the closest people you have in your life, you don't even truly speak the same language as mm. you have the same heart language and you can live there, sit around the fire. They call it campfire university. It's where the pygmies would take us to school, mm -hmm. teach us about their culture. Um, and like, I could just laugh around a fire. I go to sleep with my cheeks literally hurting because I've been laughing and smiling and dancing so much under the moonlight, around the fire, under the stars and the rainforest with lightning bugs to where up in the tundu, the hole in the forest where there's these hundred, 200 foot tall trees, right? That the kids climb in during the day. But when the sun goes down, there's just this magnificent, magnificent, beautiful, majestic starlit sky. And then where the trees are though, you'd think the stars would disappear. They don't because there's all these lightning bugs. And so there's these lightning bugs that are lighting up. And then you look at the ground and you think that's where the stars would stop because there's the sky and then there's the trees, but there's that even looks lit up with stars. And then the ground's covered with them too. You're like, what? There's these like glowing worms, like silkworms that glow. Like Avatar. Yeah. Well, I guess so. Yeah. I've, I haven't seen that in a, since it came out a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But literally the stars are lit up, the trees are lit up, and the ground are lit up with stars. Not really stars, but it seems like stars. Right. And we're dancing the night away because we got clean water. We're going to sleep. And uh, I'm, I'm literally going to sleep drenched, sweaty, tired, cheeks hurting. And you can't sleep that way normally in the hot, humid rainforest, like just drenched. And I fell asleep with my cheeks hurting as the sun was coming up because we're celebrating clean water. Mm. Now, fast forward though, um, I found myself in a really dark, desperate place again that was real dangerous when I relapsed. And I'd been sober on and off for 10 years um, on most of the time. And I'd built up four year, full years of real deal sobriety where I wasn't using anything. But I go through a divorce, that's hard. Lots of trauma there. Her personally, me personally, bringing us together. Bringing up worthiness, bringing up that you're not good mm -hmm. enough, bringing up a lot wow. of those childhood wounds, I'm sure. Yeah, the person I wanted to help the most in the world, I couldn't help at all, or like mm -hmm. that I wanted to. And she couldn't help me, and we couldn't help each other. And and there's just so much, I can't go into some of the things that, just I want to protect her, I love her, care about her, and she loves, cares about me. It, it's so weird, the silver lining is we were incredible friends we still are. Um, we have this deep love in our hearts for each other. We just know we're better not together. And so went to two years of counseling. And then the last six months was, or two and a half years, the last six months was just counseling to get divorced. So it was super kind. Like my family thanked her. I think some of her family thanked me or she thanked me. And 
really weird. Like she's in something now that I support, love, and she's going to be a badass rock star counselor. It's like, I want the best for her. Um, and she wants the best for me. And I mean, she's called to help people. And um, so that's really neat to support and journey with. But any divorce is hard. <laughs> uh, there's not an easy divorce. And yeah, what you're saying, I've never talked about it publicly, but that sense of unworthiness or um, failure, just fucking failure. You know, I can't even, I wanted to be the one dude in my family or one person in my family that didn't get divorced. Whether it was my parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, I wanted to be the one, you know, like I'm a loving dude and I have a lot of love to give and I hope I can give this to her. And we felt so like a match made in heaven almost. Anyways, we we're both grateful for our time together, but the divorce happened in January. There was already some struggle going on internally. I was in a good place personally, but I was burning out. And that's what drew me to fit for service, saying to be of service to the world, you must be fit for service relationally. So tribe, community, uh, financially, like through business, whatever. If you can't support yourself, you can't support others, um, which I never, I always denied myself support. I always denied myself love uh, so I could give it away. But uh, I realized like you burn out real quick that, well, not real quick. It took eight or nine years, but I burned out on giving it away. And what I realized was I was disconnected from source. I was acting like a reservoir. And yeah, we are reservoirs and we can, you got to fill up to give away. But bro, also what I've learned with Fit for Service is if you're connected to source, like that life-giving source, you can give it away because it's constantly flowing in so it can constantly flow out. But you disconnect from that and you just give, 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 give. You burn out, you run, you're running on fumes. You have nothing to give away. So that's where I was. And so the divorce happened, um, a mountaintop experience happened. Um, but bro, I lost a good friend, Fina, who I watched grow up from seven years old to 14. She died. Uh, she had tuberculosis when I met her. She was in the same village that Andy Bo died in and, um, or neighboring, but um, a man that I love, adores, like a mentor in my life, great friend, almost a father figure in Congo. He adopted her. And then for seven years, she battled health, but she got better. She got healthier. She was taller than the other pygmies. She was filled out. She was living outside the forest because she was an orphan. And uh, Papa Y just adopted her. We had to try to get her a, a lung transplant. And um, she at least needed it removed because it was killing her. And this is in like March, maybe February, March. So we got the divorce in January, February, March comes around, Fina dies. We we get her out of there just of like year, I did. This year, 2020? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was really hard for me because I watched her grow up. I watched her health be changed and saved. And now I know I should appreciate and be grateful for the seven extra years she had because she was sure. going to die at seven. And we were able to help her a lot, but we tried to evac her just like I did out of Congo to Uganda to get help. So the same guy that helped save my life was starting to help save Fina's life seven years later. And um, we got her to a hospital on the border of Congo in Uganda, then in the capital city of Uganda, or sorry, the yeah, capital city of Uganda. Then we took her to the biggest city, to another hospital, and in transport she died. Then a good friend that I was in their wedding, uh, he was my translator, right-hand man, his wife um, dies. And I was in their wedding. I love her. 
she'd fix me meals. I'd stay at their home. Like I really, really cared about Elnice and she died in like, um, late March, early April. And, um, and that was like devastating. Lost my wife, lost Fina, lost Elnice, three people I truly love and, and had tried to help, but couldn't help if that makes sense. Mm. You know, and that's the helpless feeling. Like with Andy Bo, knowing that I have access to clean water, but this kid doesn't, and his dad died, his brother died. Like just some devastating life stuff to happen. And um, bro, I just I used once, thought I could 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 have one and done, and it just took me. It's like I took the drug, the drug took me. One for me, which drug? Dude, this will sound ridiculous, but I thought I could have a joint and be done. And I, 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 but I used it with the wrong set and setting, the wrong intention, the wrong people. And I had it and I was gone to where all of a sudden it went from pot to more pot to drinking to pills to just gone. It's that whole one's too many and a thousand isn't enough. Mm. Like I literally have the brain of an addict or the disorder of an addict. And, um, especially when it comes to Oxycontin. And so I went from weed to drinking to Oxy to Xanax. And I hold myself up in a room in a hotel in Oklahoma city in, um, late March for five days, something like that to where I woke up, passed out to drills and them literally removing the hinges off the doors of the hotel I'm at doing a wellness check because no one had heard from me for five days, but it, I just had the do not disturb thing out. So no, uh, what do you call it? Help? Like no, uh, room service, no changing of my pillows or towels or anything for five days. And there's like five or six police officers pulling the door off and, uh, they're doing a wellness check, making sure I'm not dead. And, um, I open, I not open the door. They're pulling the door off and I get over there and, um, and they're like, are you okay? Like, we thought you might be dead. You weren't answering the door. How did you not hear us? And I'm like, I was asleep. And they're like, you were asleep. No one could sleep through that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, I was, you know, just really tired, really exhausted, was burnt out and was sleeping. And they leave, they put the door back on and two police officers hang out afterwards. And they, one puts his hand on my shoulder, said, what do you, what, can I do anything for you? And I go, no. Thank you though. He goes, well, I'm not asking as a police officer right now. I'm asking as John or Mark or whatever his name was. And I'm so messed up. I barely remember this, but he goes, um, I'm, I'm just asking as a like man to man, like if there's anything I can do to help you, he goes, I want you to know, like when I get to my squad car, like first thing I'm doing is I'm going to, I'm going to be alone. I'm just going to say a prayer for you. And I remember looking at him and kind of going, man, Thanks. I need it. Just remember that's what I said. Man, thanks. Pause. I need it. Right after that, I felt so much shame of relapsing, being in such a dark path, like having helped people, but now disappearing on people. And now, anyway, so I, I, I book a ticket. My team, I confess to them that I relapsed and everything else. And they're like, you need treatment. What was really cool about my board of directors was, they said, Justin, we stood behind you um, for years. 
And you always say it's your mission to put love and compassion in action and to fight for people. And now it's our mission as a board to put love and compassion in action for you and to fight for you. So we're coming alongside you and we're going to stand in front of you with a shield. We're here to protect you in this time. Use 90 days as a gift to yourself. Don't think of it as a punishment. Think of it as an opportunity to go help yourself, to find self-love and healing and growth and like to take fight for the forgotten to the next level. Like this is just the beginning. And um, I was so blown away. I was crying. But then the place they chose was a place that for me, at least it's a good place in Oklahoma, but for me, it doesn't have a great track record. It's pretty low percentages. Um, they, they're kind of more of in the business of keeping you there because mm. they can keep you there 90 days. They get paid more. Right. And well, that's just the business of rehab. Um, the longer you stay, the lo- more they get paid. Well, the place I decided to go to and change to was it was a lost cause place, uh, last resort. Um, a guy I was in there with was like nine times rehab stints, Stanford professor. Uh, that ran one of the departments there or a guy that ran literally maybe the largest college sports program in the country or one of the top three. They were just in a national championship game, like some other stuff, like they're big time. He's running that, but this is like seventh time in rehab. Um, Another guy that's a pro ball player, another guy that's uh, 15 stints in rehab for heroin. This is my first time going. And like a lot of them, like they didn't think I didn't belong because they knew I was one of them, but they're like, you're a high performer at this level, but you've never been to treatment. Why'd you come here first? I'm like, cause I don't need a green smoothie when I wake up in the morning. You know, I mean, I, I would like one, but yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? But, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't need that. And I'm not here just to be counseled and get this addiction loved out of me. Like I'm here to do the work. And, um, I, this is the biggest fight of my life. Yes. I need to love myself through this process and discover that but I, I need fight camp. I need training camp. This right. is the biggest battle of my life. I need coaching. I need structure. So bro, they were waking me up at five 30 in the morning to fix breakfast for 32 guys, 60 eggs, 120 pieces of bacon. I'm, I'm fixing it for these. I don't, I'm not a cook. I don't cook my own food here in fight camp. Why are you having me cook for 31 other guys uh-huh. having to wash their dishes, all this stuff afterwards. But anyways, I was holed up in the hotel and the attempt came whenever I decided I'm not going to that other place. I was super religious and lax and allowed you to have your phone and people were using in there, using heroin inside the rehab because they knew their schedule and they could have their phones. So that was the first place before the fight camp rehab. Yeah, Yeah. before the big book boot camp, 12-step completion program that kicked out over half the people that came. Because like, you're not taking this serious. You're not going to get well. We're not going to send you out of here with a certification of like completion of rehab whenever you're going to go out of here, relapse and die. Like, uh, I was like, Whoa. Um, so they just spoke hard truths to me, but the place that I decided, the place they were trying to send me to, I decided not to go to, I tried to sway them and my board was like, no, you're going here tomorrow. And I was like, man, I, my, I just talked to my sponsor. He's saying I need to go to this other place. I felt called to that other place and this place just isn't going to work for me in Oklahoma. Like I just, I sense it in my spirit. I'm not going to watch South park at night with the guys, you know, that don't want to be there. And so the next morning I booked a trip or that night I booked a trip to Mexico 
I decided to go to Playa del Carmen and I was going to go to Tulum. But when I landed in Cancun, I got stopped like 12 or 13 times at roadblocks because of COVID shutdown. <clears throat> and what was so crazy was those roadblocks took so long. And I thought I was going to go down to Tulum, reset, talk them into letting me go to where I wanted to go or just book it and come back and go straight there. I thought I'd have like a few day, seven day vacation of like reset. But the other option was more prominent. I was like, here's my two solutions. I buy some time, go back to the rehab I want to go to, or I fucked everything up so much. I'm just going down to Mexico to die and I'm not going to have my family find me or someone that loves me find me. I'm just going to be gone down there. Wow. That's super selfish. So like as much as I want to think that I'm a selfless guy, like active in my addiction, I'm the most selfish guy there is. And mm -hmm. so I um had a lot of work to do anyway. So to try to sum it up, I go down there, I get stopped 13, 14 times trying to get to Tulum. I make it halfway to Playa. I decide to get a spot there. Everything shut down. No one's allowed anywhere without a mask. Um, there's a, what was that? Not the quarantine, but the, the where you can't go out past a certain time. Curfew. Curfew. So they have a curfew and I'm down in Mexico. I flew down there with a one-way ticket with two pilots, four flight attendants, and me. I don't know why they didn't cancel the flight. Like there's literally one passenger of six employees and all the gas jet fuel it takes to get someone to Mexico. So I thought it was very like symbolic because I was in this two head space. I'm going to get my mind right, go to the rehab I want to go to. Then the other was like, this is a one way trip. Very few things packed because I'm not coming back from this. And so the sim symbology or whatever you call it to me was like, yeah, I don't want to take, I want to take as few people on this journey with me. Um, and so someone asked me, how do you get to such a dark place so fast? When I get, when I, when I relapsed, it was like the drugs took me and I felt like I was not going to make it like this time I'm not going to escape. And I felt like I was, I get the visual of like the twin towers and like when the, when the jets hit the buildings, the, and there's people trapped above where the jet fuel's burning. They're stuck in the burning building and they are trying to find the exits. They're trying to find the staircase. The elevators aren't working. They're looking for every route of escape and they find a window. And it's like, what are they going to do? Are they going to stay in the burning building with no exit and just suffer and die a horrific death? Or are they going to jump out into the fresh air or at least they can breathe a few more seconds and like neither option's good. Mm. They're both terrible, but it's the only two options in that moment that you see. Yeah. In that, in that headspace. Yeah. In that headspace. So it's a really dark space and there's always a third option, but uh, I didn't see it at the time. So anyways, I get down there, I end up meeting a drug dealer uh, through a military veteran of ours who bought a dope condo that was there and was trying to heal from ptsd and but he had an addiction he was dealing with his like sweetheart the love of his life his beloved um his bride decided not to come because of covid they had bought it they were going to meet up they just did the lockdown 
And she's like, let's just wait a few more months. And he's like, no. And, and she goes, if you're trying to get me to move to another country during a worldwide pandemic, like we're done. So she breaks up with them after they buy their condo. And so he's down there in a bad head space. I'm down there in a bad head space. He finds this drug dealer. I don't know if he told the drug dealer or if the drug dealer knew fighting somehow. But anyways, all of a sudden I take a picture with a drug dealer. He sends it to his guy in the cartel. All of a sudden we're at this cartel like dealer's house where his like penthouse suite and these badass apartment complex. And I'm on the rooftop. He's got the whole up first or top floor. He's got an infinity pool, waterfall going into it. Like this is like a, what's that movie um, with the cocaine dealer? That's Scarface. Say hello to my little, yeah, this was Scarface, but in Playa del Carmen. Right. He's got a silk shirt, the chains on the tattoos. There's police officers on the rooftop with us that have guns yet. They're working for the bad guy. Right. And, uh, Welcome to Mexico. Welcome to Mexico. So I, I bought all these drugs, attempt to take my life uh, the next day. And um, back in, back in Playa at my yeah. hotel. So we get back, I buy all these drugs from the guys. And what I bought was Oxy, Xanax, bunch of weed, um, which was strange enough. They say it was grown in New York. I'm like, why are you selling New York weed in Mexico? But Maybe it sounds fancy. Yeah, it sounded fancy. It was actually really good stuff. <laughs> um, like the THC on, I was like, holy cow. This They're is... like, everybody thinks that we're shipping drugs from Mexico, <laughs> Mexico. to New York. Now we're shipping drugs from New York to Mexico. <laughs> to Mexico, we're selling it to the New Yorkers. We're that fucking fancy. <laughs> he looks like he... It looks like Mike Tyson was supposed to be there, and there should have been a tiger on top of the right. the, the roof. But anyways, I get back to my place. I'm in a really dark headspace. I just decided on April 5th that today's the day. And I um, take five Oxy 80 milligram pills, which if you know anything about Oxys, normally after surgeries, I give people five or 10 milligrams. I found Oxy 80s, which were made in Mexico, I think, and could have been cut with like fentanyl or something you know stronger and wasn't like it was the real deal for sure but it wasn't like the real deal you right. know and um so i bought a ton of those i bought two milligram oxy or sorry xanax which are the strongest weed coke crazy amount of coke which was the strongest coke i've ever had in my life um and then i bought this red or pinkish i'm colorblind partially and this crystal that they told me was MDMA or Molly, like it was the pure crystallized form or something like that. She said it was real hard to get a hold of. And anyways, um, I go back to my place. I take five eighties, which if we do the math with five milligrams, 400 milligrams of, of oxy is like 85 milligrams pills. So I'm taking three prescription bottles almost like 30, 30, and 20. Yep. I'm taking that all at once, snorting it. I take the five Xanax, two milligrams, which Oxy, an opiate like that, and the strongest opioid were one of them with the strongest Xanax. Benzo, like that's, yeah. yeah, Benzo. It's uh, like a heart-stopping combination or cocktail. And <laughs> I, um, anyways, I, I take those, snort five lines of Xanax, five lines of Oxy, um, take like a Sharpie sized, uh, Real like Coke. That. huh? Of Coke. Yeah. yeah. Sharpie pen sized line of Coke. Most I've ever done. Nose is numb. I drink about half or three quarters of a handle of tequila and I hate tequila. 
I mean, Texas, that's what every kid gets drunk on. And, um, and that's what I first threw up on. So I'd never really liked it after that. And, um, so I drink that I'm punishing myself. I'm taking this and all of a sudden the lights kind of start to dim. I'm high drunk on the pills. Um, and I just knew I was going out like everything slowed everything started quiet. Everything started to darken. Everything started to get kind of still. My motor skills started to slow. Everything started to fade. And there was a, a lit, a, not a sense of worry, but a knowing that I really did it this time. Yeah. Time, time's about to one time doesn't exist. And two my time's out. Um, wow. I never said that. Anyways, like I'm about to exit time. My time's over. Um, and something in my spirit said, take the crystal. I hadn't taken the crystal of, of, uh, of Molly MDMA. So I do, I crush it up real fast, like slow. One of the hardest things I ever did was crushing that. I have a Sapphire, like a chase Sapphire reserve card mm-hmm. that's got metal inside and plastic on each side. Dude, I cru- that broke that card open, crushing this crystal open or up. And I snort it and it's both n- nostrils. And I've never had a, my nose is numb from the Coke, but all of a sudden I have the worst burn of my life. Um, because like the chemical burn. And I remember I, I crawl over, not crawl, but stumble over to the bed just from the, the table to the bed, which was like a studio condo. Like it, they were close. And I sit on the bed and I fall back and I pass out. This is noon or 2 p.m., something like that, right around that time in between there. And I just decided to end it. I pass out, everything goes dark, quiet, and I knew it was over. I just knew I was about to be gone. And I wake up to a gasp like a, <gasps> at like 6 a.m. the next day. How many hours? Is that like 16 hours, 18 hours? So 2 a.m. the night before. No, 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 no. 2 p.m. 2 p.m. the night before to 6 a.m. Yeah, so 16 hours. Yeah, and if I did it at noon, 18 hours. Yeah. I'm mean, wild, right? Like. So 16, 18 hours, I'm passed out and I wake up and the first thought after (gasps) was, shit, I'm still here. I'm like, fuck, I'm alive. And then I felt shame, but I also felt gratefulness and something told me to go get in the water. So I walk out of Playa del Carmen, my hotel room, and I step right onto the sand I was right like beachfront or whatever. And that kind of brought this grounding to me. And I'm in the clothes from the day before. I take off my shirt. I'm in, not pants, I'm in shorts. But I go and I just get in the water. And I sit down on or like on my knees, kind of in like a meditative state or like wrestling position type thing. And the water's coming over me, the ocean. The sun's not up yet. And I just start breathing. Trying to connect with my breath, but like I feel this shamefulness washing over me. It's like shamefulness in a wave and a little bit of gratefulness I'd feel and like a big wave of shamefulness and a little bit of gratefulness. And it started to kind of teeter totter. And as I started to breathe more, I'd be a little more grateful, but still feeling so shameful. It was like something switched. And then all of a sudden it was gratefulness washing over me and shamefulness leaving and gratefulness coming over me and shamefulness leaving. And I'm sitting there and like, I just started thinking like, I'm so grateful for the breath in my lungs. 
-hmm. right now. And I'm so grateful for the beating heart in my chest right now. And just being present in that moment, that breath and feeling the cool healing waters over me. And as gratefulness was the only thing there and shamefulness had like left, I felt like I was supposed to open my eyes. I don't know if this was 10 minutes, 20 minutes, five minutes. It's almost like I wasn't in that time space. I was just there. And something in me told me to open my eyes and or it's time to open your eyes. And I, I just had the darkest night of my life. I'm had my eyes closed, was in so much dark shame. But I opened my eyes and dude, two seconds later, less than two seconds later, the sun, it just popped up on the horizon. I'm in the ocean. I'd just been grounded in the sand. I'm being healed by the waters and I see the light. And it just like, it was like God painted me the most gorgeous sunrise he's ever created. <laughs> and it was just, it was like, wow, the creator, source, God, like paints one of these every morning and every night for all of us to appreciate, to enjoy, to gaze upon to ponder, to wonder, to be in awestruck wonder of like this creation. And bro, I sat there and I cried in the waters. I just cried in the waters. And I knew this was April 6th. So April 5th, I attempted to take my life on April 6th. I'm the most grateful for my life I've ever been. Um, so it was almost like I was the most ungrateful to the most grateful. Like those two polarities, like just like just a crazy flip and i knew i had to come back i knew i had to go to rehab i went to rehab i did the deep work it was the toughest hardest 90 days of my life and then when i came out of it i was like i need tribe i need community and i thought when i got out of rehab i was just going to go get lost in the forest i just need the forest that's what i need i need to go I need to connect i need to either be with the pygmy people my tribe my family or i need to just walk off and do like a three-day soul wander or vision quest where I'm alone in the forest and I go live in a twig and leaf hut and I just take a shower in the rain. Those are my favorite showers in the world. Mm. The cooling, healing waters. Whenever a rainstorm comes, it's 20, 30 minutes. You have to rush because you're like, oh shit, it's here. And then you grab your soap, you grab a, uh, oftentimes you don't even take a towel because you're going to be drenched. Sure. Um, so you leave a towel in the hut or under a tree and you just go get naked in the forest and you just take this healing shower that's cool in the hot, humid rainforest. And you, I can't even see you when it rains that hard. Right. And um, uh, so anyways, that's what I thought I was going to do. But I got out in like three to six weeks that were amazing, sober, feeling joy, feeling healed from a lot of childhood trauma and PTSD and addiction and depression from the work I did, but it was like, they kind of beat me down there. It wasn't a building you back up process. It was a tear you down. And when you get out of here, you can rebuild later. Um, but we're going to strip you of everything. Um, and so it was a hard process, but then something hit me like reach out to Aubrey. And I don't know why that came over me. I'm so glad it did, but I get on Instagram and I look at what you've been up to. And honestly, bro, just to share a little bit, like I felt some shame attached to our friendship, not you, you by you for any means or by any means, 
But because when I relapsed, I dropped the ball and I kind of ghosted in communication. Mm -hmm. You had reached out wanting to help. And I didn't get back to you. One, because of a political thing with another organization I'd previously been with, but two, because I'd relapsed shortly after that. I started going through marital troubles before the relapse. And then anyways, long story short, like I check your Instagram and like three or four posts back, you posted a video about fit for service. And I knew I needed to continue the deep work. I knew I needed tribe. I had to have community. I was lacking it. And when I saw that, I was like, is this a business mastermind? Like, no, it's a tribe. It's a community. It's a collective. (laughs) That's what I need. (laughs) And so I remember, I think I shot you a text. And then shortly after the text, because it's so vague, I just shot you like a voice text. I was like, hey, bro, I'm just throwing it all out there, being vulnerable, transparent, like, laying it out on the line. I dropped communication with you because I relapsed. I'd gone through a divorce. I felt so much shame. You wanted help and I wasn't in a good headspace, wasn't in a good place in life. And like, I just got out of rehab. I was there 90 days. I almost lost my life to an OD and like, I need tribe. And I don't know why, but I feel called to your tribe. And like, I don't know what it is. I'm about to fill out an application, but I know I'm late. There's a waiting list. Um, but if you could consider me for the next go around or whenever timing's right, if it's right, great. If it's not cool. But I I thought I would regret it if I didn't reach out. Don't want to have that. What if? Yeah. I didn't want that. What if? So you reached out, then Claire called, then I got a hold of Christian or Christian got a hold of me and I was booking a trip to Sedona like the next day. (laughs) Isn't that wild? Yeah. And, uh, I guess I I don't want to take up too much time, but if I could, finish with that 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 vision in Sedona we did breath work and so that first vision I had completely sober right the second vision I have also completely sober never I mean breath is kind of a its own drug but yes Uh, you're right you're right okay (laughs) sober sober enough sober enough in a way that it was more meditative breath work than like than consuming a substance that then takes it, you there. it is breath it's life force wow you know? okay. it's like purely it is sober but it's it's you know we can open ourselves up to the mystery open ourselves up to the soul yeah. that's always conspiring to help us and actually move things through us when we <sighs> allow ourselves to use these vehicles i mean that same thing that in that moment of desperation told you to crush that crystal before you went to bed to mm. give you that stimulant that was going to pull you out of your did darkness I, I didn't share that on the spot i shared it with you didn't i you did uh when I was at treatment, when I was at rehab with the addictionologist, with the uh, therapist and with the recovery advocate who was an uh, uh, addict himself, but he was the head recovery advocate there. They wanted to know if I had ever attempted suicide. I said, yes, twice. I told them the first one, they go, that one someone could survive from, but it would be, it would be very plausible that they die from it too. Like it's uh, like, that was a 50, 50 shot. Like you got lucky there. And the last one, April 5th, when I told him what I took, he goes, Justin, there's no way, absolutely no way you should be in front of us right now. That was 100% a heart-stopping cocktail. Nobody, nobody, an elephant probably wouldn't survive that. Like, it's insane that you're here right now. And then all of a sudden, I flash back to that crystal. I was like, oh, shoot, like, I went back to that dealer that I took the picture with that took me to the cartel guy and I asked him if I could get more of that and what was it? 
goes, oh, it was Molly. It was MDMA. Don't you remember you asked for that? We gave you that. I was like, no, no, what was it? He goes, oh, did you like it? I go, I'm asking for, I, I was thinking a no or maybe, but what was it? I just, so yeah, I liked it. What, you know, what was it? He goes, oh, that was red phosphorus meth. It was crystal meth. And I was like, whoa, I've never done meth in my life. Never would think to touch it. That's, that's like one of the drugs. It's like heroin and meth. Those are the two things you don't right. do. That's what losers do. Don't do, don't be a loser. Like, um, the other stuff, like somewhat more respectable people you might find doing Coke or pot. Or, which is, which is crazy ironic that we have these that judgments about yeah. these different or things. Or drink, right? Drinking yeah. can be so terrible for people. It's one of the most dangerous drugs there is like meth and heroin, which you stop drinking. You know, you know, there's two drugs in the world that you stop immediately once you're chemically dependent that you die from is alcohol and benzos mm. xanax and alcohol you cold turkey that and your body will go into a um a seizure a coma or die so they have to like wean you and off both that. are acting on the gaba mechanism yeah. in the brain but you stop heroin you stop meth you'll have some bad withdrawals but you're not going to die from it so anyways i i tell them that and they go justin you cannot get that in the u.s you know uh breaking bad and the blue meth like you can only get clear or or milky white like meth here like salt looking meth he goes but in mexico you can still get red phosphorus and that's the world's strongest meth the first or second time you use that you stay up for six or seven days i was like six or seven days like six or seven days i go i passed out for 16 hours 18 hours they're like, Justin, the only reason, the only plausible reason your heart is still beating, that you're still alive, is because they sold you bad drugs and they gave you red phosphorus meth, the world's strongest meth. And I was like, what? So again, the universe conspired to sell me the wrong drugs. Yeah, even even working through that drug dealer, you right? know, and that's how you have to understand An angel. that the souls of everybody in the collective is always working together. And even someone who's probably done a lot of bad in his life. Yeah. You know, they was still acting, and that voice was still there saying, "Oh yeah, sell them the red phosphorus, give yeah. them that one." And who knows whether the, what that came from, and who knows what caused you to angel do that. exactly meth dealer, exactly <laughs> right. Even even without meth. his without his awareness of it. Yeah, and they probably. Yeah. All right. So All before right. we were interrupted by the lawn army, <laughs> we were wrapping up that story. There was others. Uh, literally eight people with uh, leaf blowers which is yeah. actually quite lovely because they blew through extremely so fast, fast. <laughs> it was loud as all out gone with the wind um so all right so we're we wrapped up that story ultimately you know talking about how the souls and the collective whatever conspired in many different ways telling the, the drug dealer potentially and it could all be coincidence if you want to be a skeptic and say oh yeah it's all coincidence and the vision was a coincidence and all this stuff fine 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 whatever you whatever you want to believe but ultimately, you know, I think the the reality that makes the most sense to me is there's all of these unseen hands, mm -hmm. these forces. The one that told you, you know, to ask for that, the one that asked him to to give it give you the wrong drug, the, the one that told you to take it, and that's what ended up saving your life. And then ultimately brought you out of that. And then that, perhaps even that message to say, hey, look at Aubrey's Instagram now, which is yeah. right when I was posting the fit for service thing and reach out then and then the past relationship we had everything conspiring once again you know the helping hands of the universe which has saved your life my life probably yeah. all of our lives many times we don't even know right and and really you know put you in a position where you're 
doing some breath work in Sedona <laughs> with an introduction to uh to a new tribe. Yeah. Which I knew I was lacking so much and desperate for, but still at the same time, it still blows my mind at how much I needed it, but didn't know it. I mean, I, I knew I needed it because of my experience living in tribe, but just not believing it actually exists here, that it's been fractured and broken to where our American way of life and American dream is so different than what we were created for. I mean, you know, I mean, from being a man that is successful, but also more significant than successful, like they both go hand in hand, but you know, success without significance is pretty empty, pretty meaningless. Sure. You get a bigger, bigger house where right. you're more and more isolated and lonelier and lonelier. And then yep. you look out at the world and you think everybody wants something from you. They're all yep. trying to get some money or get some power, or get some something else. So you get more and more isolated. You're projecting the best sides of yourself to everybody around you, making sure everybody thinks that you're doing fine, but you never share the vulnerable, messy, ugly, mm -hmm. dirty truth of what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And that's the state that unfortunately most of us are in. And that's why, yeah. you know, when everybody looks at somebody wealthy and says, you're easy for you to say or projects that oh, their yeah. life is a fucking cakewalk, it's not. I promise mm -hmm. you that. Because the thing that we need, as we've seen down in Mexico, I mean, not in Mexico, in Africa, yeah. is that the true happiness comes from tribe. Mm -hmm. And there's no greater isolation than being on the top of a mountain where everybody around you wants something from you. So, oh. People have no idea, really. Like, yeah, all right, some things are really easy. Some things are really convenient. The basic needs are covered. And, you know, for the people in that state, it's hard to even imagine what the suffering would be like for the pygmy people who have none of their basic needs yeah. covered. However, another aspect of the basic emotional needs of tribe, they have in spades. Yeah. And the other people are bereft. So it's pick your poison, wow. you know? And it's like, that's the thing that we have to realize. Like, we can't judge everything based upon our own criteria like tribe but starvation all right or av absolute opulence and all the food but a starvation of emotional support and you know both uh, are both are bad we're not in the i'm not going to be the one to say this one's better or this one's worse they're both awful yeah you know situations to be in but real quick i mean because i'm gonna get to the breath work and and um vision that was so healing and epic for me uh but man, the thing about living in community, so I felt like I was, I, I didn't feel like I was at home either place. I did with the pygmies for sure. But at the same time, like, you know, I didn't grow up here. I, I you know, it took me 30, 25 years to get here. I look so different. I mean, even the polarities there, right? Like here's these shorter, smaller statured people with dark skin and no arm hair or facial hair or leg hair. They just don't have body hair even though grandpas, you know, and then I get there and they think I'm a grandpa when I'm 25 because I've got this big beard. It's blonde. It's got white spots from malaria and mm -hmm. the stress on my body, but I'm a big dude. They're little, you know, like we look complete opposites, but our hearts are the same. We're one, you know? And, uh, the thing about them is a kid will be a slave for a day. Can't go to school. Never has that opportunity. And he's in the fields from like three, four, five years old with his family and he gets a full day's wage or maybe his family does. And it's two bananas for a family of five or six. 
where each of them get a small fish or two for a day's wage, which they, the slave masters say a small fish. And I go, that's a minnow. That's fish bait. We use that fish to catch other fish. And he's like, well, do you, do you pay your animals or do you feed your animals? We feed ours. Doesn't that make the most sense? Isn't that wild? Whoa. Yeah. But think about this with a kid coming down, sitting by me on a, a log, right? Sitting around the fire. And he just got his full, full day's wages. And it might be 10 to 15 peanuts, 10 to 15 peanuts. So a child's hands just his palm, right? And he reaches his hand out, motions for me to put my hand out. And I do. And he shares half with me. He just shared five, seven, eight peanuts with me. And I'm thinking, I can't take this. This is your food. This is your pay. This is your sustenance. Like I can't take that. But they're so eager and willing to just, what I have is yours. I only take what I need from the forest. And if, if I have food, like, like a kid teaching me a leadership privilege, right? Like I'm not going to eat till you eat. Like you can have what I have. Like what's mine is yours. We're together in this. It was that, it was a moment like that that actually was what set Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, on his whole path Hmm. to create the whole study called Logotherapy, the study of purpose. He literally watched someone in the concentration camp that he was in and everybody was starving. They got little Mm -hmm. pieces of bread Mm -hmm. and he watched that person and there was somebody dying of starvation yeah. and this everybody's dying but someone got their share and then took half of his own share and gave it to this other person so he had one and a half shares of bread uh, so to nurse him back and victor frankel realized at that point like there is a deep beauty in in humanity uh, and then when when you have the purpose to serve others and that purpose to like go out there it changes and it was sustenance both for the giver and the receiver yeah absolutely. right like when you give food in that way yeah he didn't um, he didn't lack even though even though he was giving away half of it he actually r- received and probably that's the, more and that's the thing than just that, that half you give that's away. the thing that we don't we don't realize and um and in these really dark places we can find these amazing lessons and these yeah. amazing teaching because that little kid was a teacher oh he was no doubt about I it i mean maybe two three years old um and i'll get into the vision real quick of breath work but real quick before that my first time my ex-wife and some of my family and close friends, uh, they get a little disturbed when I eat rotisserie chicken now. Um, and I know that sounds funny to say, but I, I, took, I took a chicken leg in Congo and they, they'd given it to me. And they, uh, you know, they're, they're splitting a forced chicken, which, I mean, one of our chicken breasts, like a real deal, not real deal, the fake stuff with the hormones and everything right. pumped into it. Our chicken breasts that, you know, are massive at Costco or Walmart or wherever. Sure. Like it, a ribeye. Yeah, like a ribeye chicken breast is more meat than a whole forest chicken in the Congo. Sure. Without a doubt. Like little chicken legs like that big, you know, and it bare it has half of what you think should be on there. And I ate that and I took the bone and I chunked it over my shoulder. You know, because it's just the bone. What are you gonna do with that? And bro, kids scattered and went and grabbed it and blew it off, brushed it off. I don't even think they rinsed it off, but just started eating the knuckles of each side of the chicken leg, like the knee and the ankle, like 
pulling off the knuckle and eating that and chomping into the bone marrow. And my translator and right hand man there goes like, Whoa, you just threw that away. And I was like, I'm sorry. Like I was shocked. I was confused. I go, what are they going to do with that? And then they start chomping on it and they start eating it. And all of a sudden I was like, holy cow, my scraps. What I grew up in being taught, don't eat that. Throw that away. Don't give it to your dog. Do not give it to your dog because it might hurt his stomach. Mm -hmm. Right. But yet these kids are growing up eating it. And so when I, when I sit there and I, random story, but when I eat a rotisserie chicken, I finish the bones, the spine, the ribs, the, every part of it. I mean, I learned that, oh, don't throw away this, the knuckle, the joint, like is actually a really good part of the, the body for you. The bone marrow is the most nutritious, most flavorful, most incredible part of the animal. Why would you throw that away? You know, and so like I, I normally eat rotisserie chicken now by myself, or <laughs> or okay, not or going with to people Buffalo that understand. Right? That'll be real embarrassing. Yeah, for me. <laughs> well, I'll get the I'll get the boneless or you know that's the tenders. But no, go ahead, man. You eat yeah. it all. I'm just I'm just going out of my own shame for not wanting to eat the spine. <laughs> yeah, You're like oh man, do I got to yeah. eat the spine? No, and and it's a skill. Like it hurt the first time or two. I was like, oh, but there's a skill to it, right? Yeah. There's a there's a fishing village there that I go to and they get these little bone bony have you ever seen a Goliath tiger fish? Oh yeah. Dude, those things are beast. But they have little tiger fish too, right? The ones that don't have alligator sized teeth or crocodile right. teeth. And they but they're so bony, hundreds of bones it seems like. And these fishermen and fishing kids, you can pop a piece of that that bony bony tiger fish in their mouth. And in one side, they're chewing the meat and the other side, the bones are coming out. They're doing it simultaneously. They're eating and spitting bones out at the same like exact people time. People are really good at eating sunflower seeds. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. even the best of the best, like eating these bony fish, just spit them out quick. So anyways, like, uh, I, I, um, watch that, appreciate it, learn to, to, to eat For like sure. they eat. It's beautiful. Yeah. And so anyways, I, I go to Sedona. We're there. I meet tribe like I've never met. These people that were instantaneous family that was almost like in the forest with me. I just knew I could trust and love and share and and give and and receive and all that other stuff. Um, and it was really really good. So I'm in Sedona and we do the breath work. And I'm thinking, okay, this will be cool. Be meditative, whatever. And um, but then you, I think you, it was three hours scheduled for three hours. Like, whoa, how am I going to breathe for three hours? Which I guess I breathe forever, but <laughs> or have since I always existed. But it's like, how am I going to do focused, concentrated, working breath for this long? Anyways, Anahata, is that you said? Anahata. Anahata, hot stuff. Uh, she was leading it. They had the facilitators up there, the helpers, you guys, which were so incredible, man. And y'all said to set your intention. My intention coming out of rehab, knowing that I struggled with self-love my whole life. And for 20 years, I've been suicidal off and on. Really only three times majorly, but two times attempted and one time for real, right? So I I know that I need to breathe, like go into this breath work, set an intention. I wanted it to be loved. The one word, loved. Not just love, but that I'd feel loved. That's why the D's at the end of it, that I would just experience that for maybe the first time for real. And so I, I take it, uh, or I, I take the paper and the note card and I write down loved. And then we did those cards, 
uh, we drew those things and, um, it just helps with the intentions, the, what do you call them? Oracle cards or, sure. um, yeah, I never seen those. Like, this is a whole new world for me. Right. And whole new language, feminine, masculine, drop in, uh, <laughs> uh, the lexicon. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know that one yet, but I will. <laughs> uh, shamanic. Well, it's like breathe, every, tri uh, every tribe has a language. Yeah. You know? Every tribe has a language. And I love this language because it's one of like acceptance and worth and value and like sharing and community and tribe and things that we all need and are desperate for and resistance and freedom. And I mean, these words that like I want, I want those in my everyday language. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I want to use these. I want to give these. I want to receive these. Um, vulnerable, you know, um, divine masculine, divine, like those things, like we're so powerful and set up this breath work to where I went into it and we start breathing, bro. And, oh, the card I got was the goddess of water which is so crazy. I, I get this card handed to me and I'm like, what is this? Is this witchcraft? Is it not, you know, what would super religious people think? What would nobody think? What would, you know, and I'm open-minded. So I was like, yeah, let me take a card and see what I get. Of all the cards I could have gotten in this deck with these 50, 60 people, I get the goddess of water. And I'm the man of, I mean, like I'm, I, you had started before I even drew that though, about talking about the rainmaker mm. and that we're all rainmakers. And I'm sitting there like, dude, that word resonates with me so much. That's who I want to be as a rainmaker. So the story of the rainmaker, just real quickly, yeah, is um, I love it. Please share it. It's a proverb, and Eric Godsey shared this proverb, and it's a story about an archaeologist that was going to study uh, a remote Chinese village, and they hadn't had rain in a long time. And he said, "What are you going to do about this? Crops are failing. Everything's a drought, a famine, a big drought." And uh, they said, "We're going to call the rainmaker." He's like, all right, who's the rainmaker? So this old man comes to the village. They lead him to a, an abandoned hut at the end of the village and they lead him into the hut. And the man stays in the hut for three days. The rainmaker stays in the hut. And at the end of the third day, it starts to rain. <laughs> and the rainmaker comes out. Do you not out. have food or water? Yeah, the, the rainmaker like comes out and the archaeologist is there. He's like, what did you do in the hut? What is going on? And he said, well, when I came to this village, mm. it was out of order <laughs> and it infected me. And so I went into the hut and I brought myself into order and I cured the disorder within myself. Mm. And then the land became into order and then it started to rain. Mm. And that's the story of the rainmaker. And the idea was we actually had the water that actually failed the well, <laughs> ironically <laughs> enough, for your breath work failed at that point. Oh. One of the check valves failed. And we had no water at the ranch. Couldn't use the restrooms or wash Couldn't your hands. Couldn't use the restrooms, no, no running water, yeah. which was, I didn't really realize the irony of that happening for your breath or right. either, right? So I said, we all have the opportunity to be rainmakers rain and the opportunity to set our own relationship with water back in right accord, our appreciation, our gratitude hmm. for the water that we have and also the water that's inside of us, the 70% of water, the tears that flow, the hmm. emotional body, you know, the, the, the sea has always been linked to our emotions, the turbulence, yeah. the depth, the, hmm. all that, like that's so become in right accord with our own waters. And we'll see if the well water, you know, is the kind of turns Storage. back on and ultimately at the end Comes of the back breath into work, order. <laughs> and, oh yeah, we set ourselves back in order. And again, could be all coincidence, but we yeah. popped out of there and I went over to the kitchen sink and turned it back on and the water was running. So and we had some technicians that came out and fixed it. But ultimately, sure. like 
it was there was kind of the metaphor that came through and then you yeah. getting the goddess of water card yeah. you start to see all these synchronicities and and one of them at any one of them you're like yeah all right whatever yeah but all of them they together. start to stack and then you just start to just start to nod still keeping a little bit of skepticism sure. i'm always a little bit skeptical yeah. and i always don't want to be too woo woo exactly i always want to say this you know all could be just coincidence and i always hold on to that because i think that's healthy because you can get lost and looking mm-hmm. at everything as this oh my god this bird said this and oh my god this yeah. fucking flower button there was this butterfly and then and I knew that I had to, you know, like there's, yeah, you there's, can reach. There's, 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 you can reach. But ultimately, like when you really look with this kind of a calm and unbiased view, you start to see that yeah. again, the theme of this, the universe conspiring and certainly mm. the universe conspiring to give you that yeah. goddess of water card. Well, so whenever you said about the rainmaker, about him saying this place was out of order, I came in and it made me out of order. So I had to come back into order so that the land could come back into order, this village, this tribe, and that it could rain again. That for me reminds me so much of a Swahili proverb that also goes along with my life story and even addiction and depression. But it's, if there is no enemy within, the enemy on the outside can do us no harm. I just, that's just so powerful to me. Like if there is no opponent within, the enemy on the outside can do us no harm. Mm. it's like man if we conquer our own demons if we blot out our own darkness not saying the shadow self is completely bad but if we can lean the closer we get to light the farther we get from dark and that's and that's the process of loving into the darkness to love your shadow to love the part of you that wanted to take your life to love the part of you that's scared and lonely and doesn't feel worth where that not have any shame and just love all of the aspects of the entirety Mm. of yourself bro this is the If I've sh- if I've sh- I've shared it once, this is only my second time ever sharing this story, man. Is with you and like because it it means so much to me. It matters. There's I've had so much transformed just by being included. I don't think people understand how much it matters to be included in things, and I think it goes back to a big wound of mine at 13 years old, being rejected, and only included to be made the laughing stock and be made fun of and told you should kill yourself. You know, and then to be included in your tribe when I reach out and get in instantly. Whenever I was, I was actually late to the the deadline. I was like two or three weeks after y'all ever, ever accepted everybody and shut down the application process or put them on the wait list. And so, man, like that whole, if there is no enemy within, the enemy on the outside can do us no harm. And the vision I had, and then you talk about the Rainmaker and how serendipitous or synchronistic that was, me being there, when you told the story of the Rainmaker, and Eric had already set it up by saying it another time during that week, um, and you saying, before you even said it, I thought, one of my intentions is to be a Rainmaker. Mm-hmm. So it's loved. It's be a Rainmaker. Let's see if this water will come back on. I know everyone was thinking that, but like that was one of my one of my hopes. Mm-hmm. Like, that'd be so rad. Like, mm-hmm. not, like, not attaching an outcome to it. Like, if it doesn't happen, then we failed. But just like that'd be so awesome right like that's part of my intention to be loved let's get this water back on let's be a rainmaker and then i pull the goddess of water card isn't that wild i pull the goddess of water card i i sit there we start breathing the music's on there's some drums some of those shaker things and this is rattles this is all new to me man (laughs) it's there's some rattles and i loved it and uh we're breathing and we're being coached and i'm just like holy cow this woman she is a 
beast at breathwork. Like this is her calling, her mission. She's an Olympic gold medalist of breathwork. Yep. Like she's the best of the best there is. Like I could just, I can identify greatness now when sure. I when I meet it, when I see it and experience it. And so she was so great at what she did. I don't know if you remember this. I mean, I had my eyes closed the whole time, never opened them. But you came down over me during like 20, 30 minutes in. I don't know, something like that. And we're going into two hours of breathing at least. And because um, we set it up with 30 minutes, digested mm -hmm. it for like 30 minutes. And you got down on your hands and knees, whatever, you're beside me. And you put your hands on my chest as Anahata is coaching us into breath work, getting deeper in that breath. You have your hand over my chest and you said something to this effect. I might slaughter it, but I think it was beautiful in a way that you said, what is this armor over your heart? And you said, can you drop that armor? Can you let your creator truly see you? Can you allow yourself to be seen? What is this guarding you have over your heart? Will you be vulnerable with the creator that made you? Something like that, man. Mm -hmm. And it blew me away in a way that it softened my heart because the visual, the visualization I took myself into while breathing and hearing you say that and knowing it was you because it's your voice. Mm -hmm. um, and just being like seeing armor around my heart drop and fall and hit the dirt, you know, and just being mentally inviting in my creator to be like, God, like, yeah, take this armor off. I'm taking this armor off. I'm seeing myself place the armor down. I'm seeing the armor fall from my heart or whatever. Bro, right after that, you got up, you walked away. The music's still intense. People are having these experiences around. You can hear them having intense like breathing work and some people tearing up or crying, you know, other people just in the space or you feel it, I guess. Yeah, You're sure. all breathing together in sync like it was almost like the bear mountain was breathing with us you know it was mm -hmm. it was so incredible and um all of a sudden i had this vision that was so vivid so real almost like 10 years before you know 10 years before that 20 years ago i find out i want to kill myself i guess not find out but i decide and i'm told you know and take it on as my own truth then 10 years later, I attempt suicide for the first time. Then 10 years later, I have an amazing stuff happen from the UFC to writing a book, to a Ted talk, to Joe's pocket, meeting you, knowing that, I mean, seeing slaves freed, water given land, like acquired and farms growing. I mean, amazing, incredible, miraculous stuff that happened because of a vision that I couldn't conjure up or replicate ever again, even though I, I, I invited, I wanted, I, you know, but I, I'm not chasing it though in a way that like, oh, here's this butterfly and, and this, you know, sign said, and this person said, and the radio said, and, you know, taking things from everything and trying to conjure something up, make it happen. 10 years later, I'm breathing. You say that over me and Ahata starts picking up the breath work. And I have this vision where I literally see the ocean and we're all talking about water and pool, the goddess water and intention rainmaker, all this stuff. I don't know if this just set me up for this or what, or it was just supposed to happen. I see this deep, dark, vast ocean and these dark, stormy clouds brewing this perfect storm. And in the water, I, my vision kind of zooms in and I see in this vast ocean that all there is is darkness, nothing's there except clouds and dark waters. 
I see something floating. And it's small, but my vision kind of zooms in on it, and I see this darkened, hardened heart. Not like an emoji, but like an anatomically correct human heart that is floating at the surface of the water, but then it starts to sink. There's the dark, stormy clouds. There's the ocean waters, and my heart starts to sink and dive and start to drown into the ocean. And as my heart sinks deeper, my heart feels, my chest literally constricts and feels pressure. I was just with Laird and Gabby, Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese Mm -hmm. in Malibu. And whenever I'd go down to 11 feet deep in their pool, I would feel this weight on my chest. Mm. Um, It was every bit as real as that, if not more and even more uh, like pressure and constriction than being at the bottom of their pool last week. And so I feel every time my heart sinks, the further it gets down, the more constricting I feel, but I'm not worried. I don't have fear. I'm not anxious, but I'm observing my dying, drowning, desperate, dangerous heart. Um, And I realized that's where I was six months ago when I was despising myself in a dangerous, hateful spot of self-loathing and like there, that's where I was April 5th. My heart was sinking to the ocean floor. It was dying and I was about to be gone, dead. Well, right when that, I mean, it's feet, 10 feet, 20 feet off the ocean floor. Um, someone comes by, one of the facilitators um, or helpers, and they sprinkle water on me. Well, I'm kind of in a spot that there's a little bit of sunshine I don't know if they're cooling me off, if it was this holy water. There was some intention behind it, though, I know. And right when that water sprinkles on me, I see at the ocean surface, I see a like a dive into the water, this just gorgeous golden water that breaks the surface of the water. And it's literally like a dive into it, and it just dives in and starts this gorgeous swirling swim down to my heart and it that thing is moving my heart's slowly sinking in this gorgeous golden water is it's on a mission a rescue mission diving straight down towards my heart and it catches it right before it hits the ocean floor two three feet off it encapsulates it and engrosses it and it swirls around it it's this golden gorgeous bubbly water and it swims up to the surface in this gorgeous kind of pattern and as it rises, I feel the relief or pressure let off of my chest. Physically, I feel this. And I can start breathing a little deeper, and it breaks into the surface. It breaks the surface, and it's, it's now hovering over the, the, the ocean waves or waters. It's not like crazy waves. Anyways, um, there's this gorgeous golden water swirling it. All of a sudden, it turns into this this flame, this ball of fire, and it's around. It's encompassing my heart. When it goes from the golden, gorgeous, healing waters to this burning fire of love, in and on and surrounding, and just consuming my heart, and then it turns into this bright light of this white orb of the sunshine. And whenever that happened, this golden orb it started pushing back the dark stormy clouds and they started to become like clear skies and the water starts to push back at the same time 
where it starts to peel back from or push back. I don't know how you even describe that, but it goes from my heart that's there in the dark water to like these Caribbean crystal clear blue waters. So the sky clears, the water clears, and it's just beautiful. And then all of a sudden it goes from the gorgeous golden water to the the flame of love to this white bright light orb to then it turns into this golden molten like smoldering kind of goldsmithing gold and it starts to solidify it's 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 like melting onto my heart like what a goldsmith would make jewelry out of and then it solidifies into this heart of gold hmm. which is so crazy and i i decide to raise my hands to like help me breathe a little bit more I don't know why I did that, but I just raised my hands right whenever my hands get out in front of my chest. The facilitator, one of those angels comes by, grabs my wrist and pulls my hands from here to here above my head. And whenever they did that, I felt like someone else, because they have both my wrists, I felt like someone put a medicine ball in my hand, like something we would train with or work out with. It felt 10, 15, 20 pounds max, but something was there. And it was this bright, or not bright, I couldn't see, I didn't have my eyes open, but it was this, this warm energy ball, a ball of energy in my hands. And I'm trying to put my hands together and they won't go. And because there's some weight to it, I put my hands back over my chest instead of above my head. My hands are out, you know, reverse plank or whatever with the, the medicine ball. And we were all talking about medicine bags and, you know, what's the medicine you're going to share with this world? And your community and your tribe and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, I was just given this medicine ball to use and train with and all this stuff. And so I see the, the gorgeous water. I see the flame. I see the light. And I feel that golden heart starting to, I don't know. It, the facilitator comes back and grabs my hands, uh, now on top of my hands instead of my wrist, and they place them above one another. And they start to place my hands down on my chest. When they did that, it was like that light entered me. No joke, like physically, it's in my mind's eye and I'm visualizing it, but not even visualize, it's a full on vision. But I feel this warmth of this like golden honey, this warm liquid, soothing, healing, love honey, just sink into my chest. And it like it, it, it swells around my heart. It melts into my heart, and it just like I can breathe deeper. Like my eyes are closed, but I can see clearer. <laughs> um, and I was just so thankful. And tears again fall down my face. You know, I'm on my back, and like these tears just kind of fall down my face. And I start thinking, like, wow, from April fifth to April 6th, like that was the transformation. I mean, it's been a process, but like at Sedona, I received self-love, I think for the first time for real and accepted it, received it. Cause dude, love's a gift and it comes with a, a the greatest it's, gift. it's the greatest gift and it comes in a pretty packaged, you know, gift and a bow figuratively. But the thing is when you're given a gift, you have to open it. You have to untie the bow. You have to pull the top of the box off and you have to grab what's in there. You have to receive it and be grateful and say thank you and, you know, and, and truly receive it. And I don't think I ever felt worthy of or belong, like that 
deserving. I would always give it away so so quick to give it away, so slow to receive it. Like I would deny myself love so I could give love to other people. And all of a sudden, like I, I felt just empowered by like, oh, it's okay to love me too. I don't just have to love everybody else. I don't just have to love God. Like I can love me. Like if they can love me, I can love me. Like, uh, it just made sense all of a sudden. And I know that makes sense and self-care isn't selfish. And I mean, I can quote stuff like that, but like actually believing it and receiving it and living it, dude, that's, that's way harder. That's the work. And so in Sedona, I was just blown away by that. And bro, I had not shared that story. I didn't share the vision there, but I, I hadn't shared the story of April 5th and April 6th and going down to Mexico, a one-way ticket, attempting a real suicide attempt, like not wanting to come back, making my mind up, taking it all to make sure it wasn't possible for me to still live or breathe or have a beating heart in my chest. And then I felt this bold moment where Madeline and Claire were talking in Sedona and they kept asking me if I was going to be in the talent show. And I was like, no, I'm not in the talent show. And everybody else, I had like 15, 20 people go, what are you doing in the talent show? And the reason they were asking was because I was goofy and I got to share this with you just real fast because the healing moment for me, one of the greatest healing moments at Sedona wasn't just the vision, but pairing it with a talent show. Because whenever I think costume party, I get ready to shit my pants or, mm. or like, you know, like piss or just scared because that's my history with it was, it was not good. It was the most wounding, one of the most wounding moments of my life. And now I'm going to Sedona with hundred and whatever people that were there and we're all tested, social distancing, all whatever. But like, I'm going with these new people. I don't know, except for you. And I'm going to go dress up. So I decided, like, I'm going to get a Viking helmet. I'm going to get my gayler, my gay tailor, <laughs> who I love, named Ben uh, in Oklahoma City. I'm going to get him to make me this, like, I was like, dude, I just need some, like, their last trip looks like they had a Burning Man night. I just need something I could wear to Burning Man. He goes, do I have free reign? I go, yeah, bro, you got free reign. <laughs> He's like, all right, Viking helmet check. I'm going to make you a Viking star commander, like, black tunic with silver <laughs> hood. And I'm going to make you these harem pants jumpsuit one arm overall like a uh, badass like jumpsuit and and to tie it all together we need to get you some like silver men's size 14 but big girl roller derby like skates <laughs> and we're gonna put your big ass in this and you're gonna go skate on aubrey's ranch in sedona in the red dirt <laughs> you know i'm like no way and uh anyways i i do it and this is the day after i think breath work or something and Bro, I was just able to, to share in a way that I never thought I would or could um, vulnerably. But I, I, I guess what happened to just share, like so many people think I'm in the skate or the talent show that I'm skating on that little platform, little stage. Uh, They're like, how are you going to do that? And I'm like, I'm not doing that. What are you dressed up for? Because I wanted to. Like, because this is my tribe. This is my community. I'm accepted here. And I'm welcomed here and I'm, I'm going to show up. I'm going to bring it just like everyone else is. And 
So I was just having fun. Then Claire said, I should be in the talent show. What can you do? And then Madeline's like, what are you doing in the talent show? I'm like, nothing. She goes, oh, good, because you're not on the list. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I'm not doing anything. And Claire goes, you should MC. And I go, I've never MC'd in my life. Public speaking is my number one fear. And she's like, that's why you should do it. And I'm like, well, why don't you go ask Aubrey and I'll do it if he says yes. And she goes, okay. And she goes, wait, no, I'm not going to ask Aubrey. You're going to ask Aubrey. <laughs> and I go, what? And she goes, it'll mean more coming from you and seeing that you genuinely want to do it. And I go, well, I don't know if I genuinely want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's like, no, go ask. And I thought about it and I was timid, bro. I started to, and I turned around. I turned around because I was thinking, one, this is Aubrey's deal. It's his show. It's his mastermind group. You know, I know you don't think of it that way, but it's the Aubrey, it's on AubreyMarcus.com, fit for service, right? Sure. Like, and so I'm like, this is his thing. He's running the show. I'm not going to go impose and say, let me MC, you know? Um, but as I walked away, kind of in shame, like, oh, I can't go ask him this, even though I'm goofily dressed up and everyone thinks I'm in the talent show. I can't just go like, you know, you're, you're, you're a driven leader, right? I'm not just going to go ask you to take over for you but then when i come back to claire she's like did you ask him i'm like no and she's like you gotta go ask him i'm like well help me because i'm nervous um she's like no if, if he doesn't want you to he'll just say it and don't take offense and but it might be a blessing i go oh that's it like is there a way for me to be a blessing to aubrey by letting him enjoy the talent show with his bride with his beloved and sit there and enjoy it and you're reading a poem or two and so it's like, you're going to be in the talent show and you're going to MC the talent show. Like, that's just a lot. You've been doing a lot. Like we're at your home, mm -hmm. you have a hundred and something guests at your home. Who does that? Like just says, yeah, for a week or something, come, come <laughs> chill at my ranch. And like, I'll have strangers and we'll welcome you into our, my home, my bride's home. Like, that's incredible, man. That's something truly phenomenal about you. Thank you, brother. Love you, man. And so anyways, I, I go and I ask you, I go, Hey, can, can, can I MC or something like that? And or I want to MC for you. You're like, no, no, I can't ask that of you. You said something like, I can't ask that of you. And I think I said, well, you didn't ask it of me. I'm asking you. And if it will be a blessing, a benefit, if it will be an addition, not a subtraction, like if you can just sit and enjoy it with Vailana, like do that. And uh, you thought about it. You said yes. And then you instantly went into, no, I can't ask that of you. Well, let me think. Maybe that'll work. How will we make it happen to then all of a sudden you were strategizing and coaching me. You were like grabbing the list, showing me. I'm like, oh shoot, I only know two of these people. Uh, maybe I shouldn't do this with 17. And then you, uh, you're like, you can do that. Uh, you just got to say uh, what they're going to do. And then you say, you all know them. You all love them. <laughs> and then you just introduce. And I was like, oh, I can do that. And I went around and got fun facts. You had, uh, was Caitlin always going to help or no? Yeah, forget she was okay. Anyways, I guess just filled in for you. But her and I, we had met one time before that, and it was like, "Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Justin. Like, it's finally good to meet you." That was it. And then all of a sudden, we're emceeing together, and I've never gotten so many comments and compliments after anything in my life that I've ever done than emceeing that, that dang talent show. And uh, something set the stage when you allowing that. And two, me being able to just be free in this goofy costume up there in front of everybody, 
to then appreciating their talents, being reminded, I don't know if you remember me saying this, but I said, guys, how lucky, how fortunate, how grateful should we be that we're together right here, right now, at the base of this gorgeous mountain, sharing our talents, our skills, uh, appreciating people. And like, I remember saying, going back to April 5th, and that's what spurred me sharing it that night, right then and there, was I go, guys, a flashback to April 6th, when I'm sitting in that water and I think, I go, how grateful should we be for the breath in our lungs? How grateful should we be for the beating hearts in our chest? Like, can you feel that? I feel it right now. And um, then I go, but guys, this wasn't where I was six months ago. Six months ago, I attempted to take my life. I tried to end it. April 5th and April 6th, I woke up and I was so grateful to be here. And I go, but six months ago, I was in the darkest place of my life. But six months later with you guys here and now, I'm in the brightest, best, most loving place I've ever been in. And I've had the most healing week of my life. So I was like, just so grateful and thankful. And I'll, 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 I'll kind of sum it up there, but man, just what you've created has been so incredible. It's such a gift, just like me being taken to Congo for that vision where the collective or those souls were like, I'm going to, I'm going to sprinkle this in. I'm going to dr- just drop in this vision to Justin's life when he's ready. And he'll have an opportunity to say yes or no. He gets to make a choice. Same thing with you, bro, with fit for service, all you do at on it and all the good things you do in the world. Like you had a choice, you had an opportunity where they dropped that in and said, Aubrey, you could do this, or you could create this. You could, you could be the one we start this with or through, you know? And you had to answer the call. You had to say yes or no. No doubt. And it's been one of the greatest joys and blessings of my life to be able to cultivate that. And, you know, for everybody listening, um, you it's know. It's been one of the greatest gifts of my life, by the way. Just want to thank you for that. Go you're ahead. You're welcome, brother. Please. And thank you for being a part of it. Because yeah. from the moment you got there, you added so much mm-hmm. love and you were instantly there. I mean, the, the basis of the tribe is, is radical acceptance mm-hmm. and radical love. It's the opposite of what you experienced at 13. It's where yeah. no matter what you're quote wow. talent is we're going to celebrate the hell out of it mm-hmm. and just the courage to get up there and share your voice and and whatever it is whether it's a poem or a dance or a, a just talking for a moment or there's every variety of different things that were there but anybody who wants to share something you're going to be received in radical love which reprograms all of the judgment and mm. all of the all of the separateness and all of the clickiness it's like no 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 whatever you have to share does that doesn't matter it could be the most challenging part of your life it could be the thing you're the most ashamed of it could be the horrible the quote horrible thing that you've done in your life it could be anything or it could be the greatest thing it could be the triumph it could be it's just going to be received and it's going to be loved and that's what that's what tribe is really all about and unfortunately you know we can't have this open to the whole world and all the listeners but i encourage everybody it's not about joining the fit for service tribe it's about the idea that you can make this on your own yeah like you can find your own group and you guys can go through your own processes i think these rites of passage are so important oh, whether yeah. it's ecstatic dance or whether it's breath work or whether it's the wanders or you know the cold plunging together or yeah. going in a sweat lodge or making yeah. a sauna into a sweat lodge i've done that before where wow. we just close the doors of the sauna and we're like we're in here for an hour and you know we'll sprinkle some herbs on the on the fire so there'll be a little smoke we'll spread the water wow. we'll sing our prayers like there's so many ways that we can do these with people where you start to build that vulnerability and that closeness mm. and that 
dropping of all the pretense and all the avatars and projections that we put out there and really just welcoming each other and and that's the idea and everybody can create that yeah in their own life and and man we all need it yeah. you know every single one of us needs Without that and craves that no matter where you are or how successful or how unsuccessful you are it doesn't matter that's just a another judgment you know like ultimately at the essence all of us are same everything else are just you know trophies and, mm. and garments that we put on but at it, that doesn't matter what matters right. is that all of us are worthy and all of us are worthy of love no matter what we've done and and to have a group that reinforces that belief and then allows the space to receive Oof. without the impetus to need to fix anything but just to be there to listen and to hold and to say like yeah i'm i'm with you like whatever you've experienced wow. i've experienced my own version you know tatuamasi i am that too and that's Oof. the that's really what tribe is all about so you know hopefully all of the external resistance that we're in in the world right now is a reminder that pointing to the areas where we need to lean in and lean in to support ourselves so that we can go out and support the world mm. in a greater way and so that we can find those places where they're hungry and yeah. find the places where they're thirsty whether mm. emotionally or physically like yeah. like you found in the congo anywhere we look you know there's people in need of that love and in need of that support and it may come in different ways it may come as clean water it may come as just a genuine hug where you don't want anything from somebody mm. you know and you're just checking on them and you're just there Dude, for them what's so nuts uh was last night at a pretty powerful moment um i was with brigham and matt bundy and uh some caitlin rose like some people from the fit for service tribe and matt had a friend that flew in to see him from la or seattle something like that where he's from and he was hosting him for the first night and his friend was like, yeah, I just don't get it. And he said, Matt telling his friend, Brian, that, you know, about the tribe, about community, about love and acceptance and all this journey he's been on the spiritual journey. Like his friend never really got it. It's been his best friend, but they've been kind of disconnected or just didn't have that flow between each other. And last night I started hanging out with Brian, started sharing some of my story with him. I'm connected with Caitlin and Matt and, and, and Brigham, but some reason I was drawn to Brian. Dude, I gave him a hug at the beginning of the night and like I saw something in his eyes and Matt told me, he goes, dude, something's happening in him. Something's stirring. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, something's stirring. I've never seen that look in his eye from like a hug. I go, really? And I just kept connecting with him, other stuff like that. And we really hit it off. And at the end of the night, man, I gave him this hug that i mean it's just a bro hug but like i i try to let people know they're loved when i hug them like you're loved it's just kind of what i say in my mind and uh dude he broke started crying a little bit started tearing up like so i had to sit down from having a hug and uh and matt came over and me and brian started talking to him and uh i, I wish I, I mean i could pull up the text or something but matt just kept going about like how much that meant to him all this stuff and then Matt shared with me, I had no clue that this guy, Brian, at all, no clue that he knew my story. That he had watched multiple things on my Joe Rogan podcast that he had donated before that he, like, he didn't tell me that at all. He didn't share that with me. Um, but we just connected, we vibed, we had all the stuff and like, I got to just love on him, right? Just bless the mess out of him, love the hell out of him, whatever. Dude, it was like a transformational moment for this guy to where he felt tribe and community. He's like, dude, this is why you talk about these people. This is why I never got it before. I get it. 
oh man, he said something that was so good. But he was like, I get it. Or the lights just came on or like, this is what it's about. Like these words, I was just like, just three or four words. I was just like, whoa, yes, yes. Like you're starting to wake up, starting to discover and um, deepen, develop. And so, man, I'm just, I'm so incredibly grateful um, to be here now, here and now with you. No doubt, brother. You guys in the room and this tribe and people need it, man. I'm so grateful for you, who you are, what you've created and, and that whole thing, you know, like whoever's listening to this, you know, it, you have a community, you can start a tribe and be part of it. Like you're not alone. We are all one. Um, and I don't know, just don't give up. Don't quit. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Like I was about to go down to Mexico, take all the drugs I could give up and die. And like, like I'm here <laughs> and, uh, I love being here now yeah. and wherever the, this, the listeners are, man, hope they continue to support you, listen, all that other stuff. But I want them to know that they know that they know that they have a purpose that they are loved, that they're not only meant to love others, but they're meant to be loved by others and to love themselves. Connect to source. We're rivers. We're not reservoirs. We can, if we disconnect, we become a reservoir real quick, but we're meant to be rivers. No doubt, brother. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Well, let's end. Uh, sure. I'm called to end with, uh, with a traditional type of prayer. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this prayer is for, for all of us, for me and you, and also for all the listeners. And it's the, seven directions prayer um hmm. that's comes from and i've of course made it my own but it comes from south america there's different four directions and seven directions prayers that come from different parts of the world but yeah let's just take a moment hmm. to drop in as we wrap this up so let's take a few breaths close your eyes as long as you're not driving and if you are just be present. Spirit of the South, Great Anaconda, may you be with us here today. May you teach us to shed all that does not serve us, all the guilt, all the shame, all the judgments that we've had of self and of others that are shackling us, holding us in a prison of our own creation. And may we shed that as the great anaconda sheds its skin, whole and one piece, so that we can grow into a new year of life, become what we are destined to be but first we must shed all of our skin so may we learn from you great anaconda spirit of the south <sighs> spirit of the west otorongo jaguar may we learn from you and may you be with us may we learn fearlessness as you stalk your prey from the silent and dark treetops, afraid of nothing, may we learn to stalk our own prey, our greed, 
our desires, our own fears. May we stock those, consume them whole, bones and all, and transmute them into love, into fearlessness, the fearlessness that grants us choice because only when we are free of our fears and free of our cravings do we truly have agency to do our soul's bidding and to do what we are here to do. Otorongo, Jaguar, Spirit of the West, Ampe, Ampe, be with us. Spirit of the North, Hummingbird, be with us. Be with us in your joy, in your exuberance, in your laughter. And as you make that long migration towards the warmer weather on those small wings, may we learn to make our own journey, fueling ourselves and drinking only the nectar of life, our sustenance coming from the flowers, coming from the joy, coming from the love, coming from community. May we be filled with that little bit of nectar from the sweetness of life to make a journey of seemingly impossible length with our heart beating and our wings fluttering. Spirit of the North, hummingbird, be with us. Be with us all. Spirit of the East, condor, great eagle, be with us and may we learn from you to look down upon our life from perspective the perspective that sees all of the small animals, all of the small shadows, all of the hidden places within our own heart. May we gaze upon the challenges that have shaped who we are from the perspective and the height to realize that everything that has happened to us happened for us to help us become who we are. And may we learn the ultimate gift of sight to see through everyone else's eyes. No matter rich or poor, no matter whatever judgment we may have, may we truly see through everyone's eyes and realize when we do that we are all the same. We are all one. The great gift of sight. Be with us, condor, eagle. Pachamama, Earth Mother, be with us here today as you always are. We are made up of you, our bones, our skin, made up of the plants and the animals, the bounty that you've created, that are you, that is you, and the waters that flow through our blood, the waters of your earth. We are one and inseparable from you. We are you. May we remember that so that when we love the earth and our food, we don't look at it as separate. We look at it as same because it is same. One day we will return back to the earth, back to the air, back to the water from whence we came. Inseparable, one and in service to you, Great Mother. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Pachamama. Sky Father, great spirit, source, 
be with us here as you always are, the other part of creation, the guides, the unseen hands, the help, the soul, the essence of life itself, the essence of love itself, the force that animates the minerals and the elements and the atoms of our body. Without your force, we have no life. We are you, just as we are the earth in the constant dance, the oldest love affair ever told, source and creation, energy and matter. May we recognize that no matter how many times we turn away, you are always there with open arms and forgiveness and love, just as we are capable of, love for self, abundant as the sun, the sun that shines on all creatures and all things, indiscriminate, May we be filled with that love and that recognition that we are all source and we are all love. We have come as love and we are love in this dance. And there's nothing we need to do to deserve it because we already are it. It's only our judgments that create separation from you. We ask not for forgiveness because we know we are always forgiven before we even ask. There is no judgment in love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great Spirit for saying yes to this dance, to this ability to know ourselves through polarity, through separation, so that we can find the unity back in love again and all the adventures along the way, the remembering and the forgetting, bless it all. And all our ancestors that have come before, and all the guides and all the helpers. Thank you, Great Spirit. And lastly, to our own hearts, a combination of flesh and spirit, of earth and God. May we know that you are always there, our heart, our center, the truth of who we are. Unmarred, unbreakable, there is nothing that can break our heart. It is a shining diamond in a world full of pillows, and may, we may think that our hearts are broken, but they never are. Our hearts are always there a brilliant white light. And when we identify that heart and allow it, to spread through every cell of our body, then our actions become emanations of our heart and then spread into our thoughts and then our words and our deeds become emanations of our heart, the truth of who we are. Our heart is always there. Thank you, heart. May we remember to walk with you leading, heart forward, head up. And may this prayer Find all those who need it, wherever you are, whoever you are. And may you know that you're not alone, that we are with you whether we ever see you or whether we don't, whether Justin gives you a big old hug or whether he never does. We're with you, brothers, sisters. We're with you to the end. And there is no end. So we're with you forever. Oh. Oh, amen. That's good. Well, brother, 
thank you so much um, appreciate it that was wow <laughs> yeah just a moment to remember you know yeah. we can go through our whole life and never take these moments to to really remember and orient ourselves, and it's uh it's a powerful practice so uh hopefully i love that thank we'll you start trying to do that yeah man yeah a lot. And, thank you for that yeah and thank you to the teachers and the and the peoples yeah, that have sure. created this as a map for us to, to orient ourselves in this wild world well brother as we wrap this up where uh where can people go for fight for the forgotten and uh and find you and, and all that good stuff uh wow yeah, bring it back hard segue yeah <laughs> hard segue but we got to wrap this thing up yeah no, we're I like back it. out everybody sorry about that <laughs> normally i would let you just sit in the glow a bit but we got we got to wrap this thing up this is a podcast yeah yeah we got to go sometime so i uh i want thank you so much for that like i needed that uh it was a real gift to me I hope it's a gift to anyone that everyone that was listening at least one right yeah. and it will be um uh where people could find uh fight for the forgotten.org uh people can become donors if they want uh our newest mission right now is we expanded into uganda and just like those slums you're talking about in kenya um there's a brutal slum in bundabugio uganda uh that we work in uh with the pygmy people they were evicted from the similiki national forest they were put on one acre of land over 300 people bro on one acre of land saying this is where you're designated to live now um, and over 300 people, we went there. I took Chris Cyborg with me actually to the, uh, she helped drill the first two wells there. And so we went to scout out like new land and Dustin Poirier he helped fund like well over six figures from his fight with Khabib and Khabib Amazing. donated and then Dana White matched it. And it was wild, man. Um, we were able to do so much good with that money. We were able to go buy 48 acres of new land for the pygmy people, um, in the forest on a mountaintop that, so gorgeous and there's 35 surviving families now over 300 people were walking around and chris and i were walking on these mounds and the kids are playing and they're having to pick up their little games and move well things they carved right and parents are cooking and they're having to pick up their firewood and move because all of a sudden sewage is being poured out of the slum and it's going down the hill and it's about to consume where the kids are playing or where the parents are cooking. They're literally having to shift their food of where they're cooking, um, what they're eating. So anyways, we're, uh, we have that 48 new acres of land. We already have three little sustainable farms that we're going to rotate on that they're going to have. And we're building 35 new homes for the 35 surviving families. But I asked, um, chief Zito, I, I got something from him that I'm going to give you sometime. Mm. Uh, it's a handmade knife from the chief. I'm going to bring it to you. You'd love it. Um, he's given me a few, and one of them's got your name on it. So. Beautiful. Thank you, bro. Yeah. Um, I asked Zito, I go, what are these mounds? His 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 throne used to be in the forest. It was his not just his father, but his grandfather's throne in these trees, like these buttressing roots. And he would sit there, and his elders would sit around him. It's just this tree you could drive a Mack truck through, and uh, that's his throne. But he was kicked out of it. They're living on this these mounds, and I ask him what the mounds are, and he says, Justin, they don't give us anywhere, or Mangbo, you know, the, the big one, the big pygmy kind of thing. He goes, they don't give us anywhere to bury our dead. We live on top of our cemetery. Like, they, this is the only place we can bury them. So there's over 150 
bodies that they live on top of, that they sleep on top of, that they cook on top of, that they play on top of, that they cry on top of. And they don't have any headstones, no markings, no anything. They just know who it was. Anyways, um, so we're, we're moving them off that land onto new land. Three new wells are there already. We're building a football field or a soccer pitch or soccer field football pitch um, to where we can host the games, like the Bundabugio district soccer game with the people that used to oppress them. Now it's a land of peace and community and tribe coming together to accept one another by playing games. Cause in martial arts, like martial arts doesn't discriminate against anybody. No. You're not black, white, or yellow, green, blue, pink. You're, doesn't matter your religion. Like when you're on the mats, you're a martial artist and your opponent becomes your best friend. Um, and, uh, anyway, so we're going to be having healing games. Like the championship game is probably going to be hosted on their new land. Amazing, um, so anyways, yeah. So fightflipcount.org, they can go there. They can follow me on the big pygmy and, uh, just so, so, so incredibly grateful. If people want to donate, support that they can. We also have bullying and suicide prevention initiatives here in schools. We've impacted over a hundred thousand students there, 22 million online. So anyone can follow there, give there. Uh, we can't do it without the support of good people. Um, and so yeah, we have a fight club. People can be a monthly giver if they want fight club. First rule of fight club is you do speak about fight club. <laughs> and, uh, mm. then after that, you know, you can give $5 a month, a dollar a month or whatever you can. And that's how we know we can continue the mission. So thank you, bro. You're welcome, brother. You're welcome. Yeah. And thank you to everybody so much for, uh, for tuning in and we love you. Yeah. Love, love, love you. We love you. Much love. Thanks everybody. Peace. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Justin Wren. Make sure you check out his organization, Fight for the Forgotten. And of course, check out the app Fit for Service Academy available in the App Store or aubreymarcus.com slash FFS Academy. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.